Welcome to the Kingless Generation, a podcast on the deep history of class struggle, paleo parapolitics, and the demonology of capital. I'm your host, Fergal Schmudlock, and once again, I've spent way too much time preparing an episode here. It's kind of got away from me, but uh, I'll have plenty to plenty to say, so that's good. Uh, if you have come here just to hear about the tale of Genji. Um, Maybe fuck off. I don't know. I, maybe you can stay if you want. Uh, it's up to you. This is a communist podcast. In my experience, the furthest left anyone goes in the field of Japan studies is usually uh, Elizabeth Warren fan obsessively hating on like David Sirota or something. But, um, you know, stick around. See what you like. See, see if you like what you hear. Welcome to my weebs. Uh, so, yeah, we're talking about the tale of Genji. This is going to be the rainy night critique of ranks, where we get to see a very different kind of patriarchy than we might otherwise see. And I think this helps us get out of very linear, linear evolutionary-ist uh, ways of looking at history, right? As we do dialectical materialism, we have to be sure that we don't get dogmatic in any kind of way. And uh, as we also do not get dogmatic about things like forward and backward, things like past and future, uh, which is something that I'm afraid to say uh, I have seen in various places. Uh, there was on the... I, I will recommend to you the recent run-through Engels' Origins of the Family, Private Property, and the State by Red Menace. This is a crucial text, especially now that capitalism might be going away, but class society is not, right? So what do you do then? Well, that's kind of what this podcast is all about. And in that sense, it's all uh, an expansion of Engels' Origins, right? And in doing this, I've seen reading a lot of anthropology, a lot of archaeology. I myself am, of course, just a literature scholar, just doing my best over here, but getting into a lot of uh, political economy as well. You know, you get back and you realize, well, uh, there have been probably many times when, for their time and place, full communism has already been achieved. Many times, right? And... You know, if you believe in class struggle, if you believe in class struggle, that's that's a key question. Uh, you know, another podcast that I I guess I will recommend. Um, there's kind of a soycore anarchist, like movementist anarchist uncle, um, who has been in the shit. You know, since like for a long time. You know, like being a young punk or something, uh, and. Uh, whatever kind of Seattle, Battle of Seattle stuff he was into. Uh, his name's Arnold, and he runs a, a podcast called Fight Like an Animal. And uh, 
he proclaims all the while, you know, while he's using Marx and uh, Lysenko, for example, as whipping boys, he also admits to never having read Marx, which completely tracks because uh, he presents the idea of, hey, what if we were to do science, but like uh, revolutionary science? Um, as his own ideas, um, so, you know, uh, coming by this honestly, I think, but, um, you know, a lot of the time from a, from a communist perspective, it seems like he's reinventing the wheel. He did a recent episode on how Lenin was the n nastiest guy ever to, to try and scare me away, I think, but, um, didn't work. Not yet. I'm, I'm still listening. Um, so he's going, you know, he's, go, he's, he's a biologist, right, by training. And he, he's got really deep knowledge of biology and evolution and, and phenotypic plasticity, the way that human beings can change. And, you know, we've seen that. If you are a communist and you have a class critique, you have cr class consciousness, we know that the ruling class is not some amorphous just blob moving through history, uh, blind class forces and demigods in some Gnostic sort of way. No, um, well, it's, it, I mean, this is Gnostic maybe too. There's a, <laughs> it's it's a, a evil god with uh, great powers, not almighty, but uh, with a will, with a, a mind and a will and, and is able, you know, despite all kinds of complexities, of course, to cohere and organize in its own interest and act in its own interest, right? And so that puts you... Uh, outside the camp of the so-called anti-conspiracy leftists out there, right? People who would prefer to see just amorphous blobs moving, right? Well, if you're there, then you know about things like Operation Gladio. And what is that except the ruling class deliberately engineering? Oh, and of course, you know, MKUltra, you have all the cults that are directly connected to intelligence agencies throughout the 70s and 80s, right? Uh, they're actively developing technology for, you know, to use psychological manipulation and drugs and all kinds of sociological principles and so on to create these structures, uh, create a more, they are engineering very actively, a more reactionary humanity, right? So thus far in Fight Like an Animal, recent series that's going on, um, I gotta really highly recommend it. It's very, very polished. You have a very smart person who has spent a long time podcasting and polishing the, these ideas, has read voluminous literature, and is explaining to you very, very interesting concepts, right? Uh, and so I know you can glean a lot, no matter what your perspective is, you know. I myself, you know, as an antidote to that one little episode of uh, Lenin, the mean old Lenin, uh, you know, I would recommend the Cosmonaut um, podcast. Cosmopod had a, a couple of episodes on Stalin and Stalinism. That's who usually gets treated in this way. But, uh, you know, that there, you have not just one book the way that Arnold did, but you have a room full of smart people who have each read a stack of books about the early Soviet Union and are looking at it, dissecting it. It's a post-mortem of, you know, an early Archaeopteryx trying to evolve into a dinosaur, to use an evolution metaphor there, right? Uh, you know, there's other places where Arnold will just adoringly quote from some book that is about all about how all the ruling classes of history were just a lot of bumbling fools, just bumbling from one collapse to the next, and, you know, while that's true on some kind of buddhological level, I think, you know, like cosmic 
uh, perspective, sure. I mean, yeah, they're doing something very, very disadvantageous to themselves ultimately and to the uh, the whole species and the whole biosphere. Yes, but they're doing something very advantageous for themselves as a class. And that's the point of class analysis. And when you have that analysis, you can begin to understand what they're doing and what we can do as a class, as the working class, right? As the non-settler class, right? As uh, the non-male class as well. What we can do to unite and act purposively in history, right? which I, I think Arnold wants to do. I think that's what he wants to do. And, and he talks about, you know, creating a, a community of revolutionary scientists uh, that will be, you know, almost like a party. Uh, <laughs> so it's always, you know, I'm always kind of giggling a little bit as I'm listening. And, you know, I have my fears that like, like uh, literally every anarchist that I've ever heard of, um, he may one day heel turn into far right fascism, just embrace everything that the um, Anglo-American empire and l other larger capital, uh, capitalist ruling class wants to do in the name of somehow freedom and, and, uh, punk rock or something. But, uh, and so far some of those intros where he's got some random audio clips of a, somebody talking about the Neuralink have got me a little worried that at the end of this, he's going to be like yeah we can control our own evolution and actually this is all just you know liberal uh eugenics discourse and we're just gonna just learn to love the Neuralink, learn to love new biotech fascism and the ruling class will change your body in ways that are advantageous to it and not you and um somehow this will inevitably lead us to I, i'm sure he's not going to go there fucking hope not um, if he does stop listening, <laughs> I'm, I'm plugging this while he hasn't gone there yet. Um, if that's going to happen, I don't know him. Um, I, lo I love his work so far. I actually love a lot of things about his work. And then, you know, I got a, my, my beloved, one of my first loves in the podcasting world, Brett O'Shea, uh, who spells his name with way too many consonants that nobody in Ireland uses anymore. Um, just saying, uh, that would be, it would normally be S E and then the E has a, an accent mark, which you'd call a, a fada in Irish, but, uh, that's all you need for Shay there. Uh, just saying, but he and Alison Escalante are responsible for a lot of my political education. I love their stuff and their piece on the origins of the family, private property and the state is something you have to listen to. I think. Uh, they go through in quite a lot of detail, and they situate it in contemporaneous uh, intellectual history, right? But I really got to disagree with some of the... Mainly, mainly they're saying uh, at one point, you know, they come down pretty hard on, like, if you look to any society of the past, and who knows who gets to decide who that is. I mean, I think I know who gets to decide who that is, but... Uh, look into societies from the past is inherently reactionary, right? But of course, that there is dogmatic. You've dogmatically put a, a progression that you think is going from one thing to the next, right? Uh, that there I don't go for, you know, and that's, I'm going to say that's pretty core to this podcast is that there are things that we can and should learn from a lot of past systems 
And that's the, the source of our great hope that we have, right? And you can get that as well from Arnold on Fight Like an Animal that just we are plastic. We can choose very much uh, in a certain sense, in a certain very scientific sense and very biological sense, we are free, right? Biolo the biological is not a realm of mechan mechanistic determinism where everything is set in stone. Uh, but in fact, there's a lot of room for, um, you know, you, you might have heard the term epigenetics and so on, you know, which genes are turned on and off depending. Well, how genes are expressed depends so much on the society that we live in and the society that we're raised in, right? Uh, we become a different organism uh, when we live in new and different ways uh, or old and different ways, you know? Uh, yeah, and fuck it. Who, why does it matter what's new and what's old? It does not matter. That's the same. That is as dogmatic as saying that, you know, being on the left means you like the color blue and being on the right means you like the color red or some shit like that, you know? Does not mean... Uh, it's, it's symbolic, right? This is on the level of the symbolic, the cultural. This is not materialist, okay? And it's not... Yeah, so it's therefore not uh, communist to talk in this way. Right. Uh, reactionaries like old things, revolutionaries like new things uh, in at their core. In fact, the vanguard of the ruling class very much likes new things because domination of one ruling class over all of humanity, over all of the biosphere, over all of the universe, I think they would hope is isn't very new thing. That is not an old thing at all. Right. And, and the people at the vanguard fascists. The real fascists are very much futurists, just like they were in the 1930s. That's and so this stance that Brett and Allison have taken would really preclude anything like land back, whereby we would be handing back the land and the water. Water back is at least as important as we see now in this age of orca-based uh, anti-capitalist struggle as well. Although I'm not entirely sure that's not an, a psyop by the military-industrial complex that has trained, been working on training dolphins and orcas as military weapons for a, a real long time now. So uh, could it be, somebody said, could it be some kind of gladio, echo-gladio to depict the, uh, the biosphere itself as the enemy, right? That's a major technique of eco-fascism that you are going to see that's the propaganda angle. Humanity is the enemy. The biosphere is the enemy. Well, we saw in our last uh, episode that ruling classes have always wanted us dead, and they have always come up with these dual, these, these threats which have a thin mask over them. As Too Young Badass has explained, it is you know, usually presented as a crisis, and it is an alternative to the communist narrative of human history, which is that technological progress, development can provide abundance uh, for all, right? Technology, I, I mean, I think actually technology at many different levels is capable of providing abundance for all, but especially with post-industrial technology levels, which is, you know, the natural course of humanity. And there is a real sense in which class society has held back development of uh, human flourishing in, in every sense, but also in the material sense. There's nothing about 
the, the ruling class gathering us into the grain state in the first place, right? The feudal state, the division of labor between peasants and aristocrats. There's nothing about that that provides a better standard of living, even for the aristocracy. This is, to- this is totally true. You know, when you look at average life expectancy, we know this from archaeology. We've seen the bones, how healthy people are, how well-nourished, well-nourished they are when they are hunter-gatherers and pastoralists and subsistence producers. At least as much of what they do is, is, is create scarcity as to create abundance, right? But if we really set that loose, set it free from the domination of a ruling class and their accumulation, their drive to accumulate, well, then human flourishing can really be set free, right? And we can, as many people have already done, you know, even after having lived under a very exploitative empire. There's many, many examples of this. The number as the stars already. And that's a big part of what this podcast is about, is, is looking into all those proto-kingless generations that are leading up to uh, the kingless generation that we now stand ready to build if only the ruling class will get out of the way, right? But that's just it. They don't want to get out of the way. And their counter-narrative to the narrative of communism is, no, actually, you know, it would be lovely if technological progress led to abundance for all. But unfortunately, uh, we are inherently violent species and we're going to develop the atomic bomb and inevitably... uh, Society, human society will become like a room full of men, each of whom holds a six-shooter. And it's only a matter of time before we all kill each other in an instant. And that threat is held over our heads, right? And it is a threat. It's, It's a narrative of crisis. It's a narrative of inevitability on its surface. But when you get through uh, the, the, the shell to the, the inside, what it really is is a threat on the part of the ruling class. What they're really saying is, we have nukes. They're not just saying humanity has nukes and humanity is violent. No, they're saying we are the ruling class. We are not going to give up our power, right? It isn't like humanity is essentially violent and can never be otherwise. It is the, the history of all class struggle, as Engels says in his footnote, right, to that opening passage of the Communist Manifesto. Already there, you have a footnote amending that that word there, that wording, uh, saying, you know, it's not all human history. It's, it's maybe literate human history. It's about there is a, a time when class struggle really begins in human history. Uh, and it is not co-equal with the development of human uh, neurological modernity and, and things that Arnold is discussing on Fight Like an Animal right now. That's something that I've also not heard him say that I think is definitely true um, and that I would add, I would change that. I would say, you know, neurological modernity is one thing. Class struggle is quite another. And they don't go together necessarily. There's no inevitable relationship between those things. Right. And I hope you agree. Well, so, you know, that's the situation that we face with and, and climate change is another one of these. I submit, uh, you know, I'm not saying in no way is that to say it's not real or something. It's not really happening. I think maybe they, yeah, maybe they're really going to push this one and, and kill off a lot of us 
and finally really do it. You know, they've just been threatening with things like the atomic bomb, with nuclear winter, with lasers, space lasers from satellites, and so on, right? Nuclear winter is such a wild one. It's amazing how that has disappeared from the discourse, right? And the pivot from nuclear winter, because they had Carl Sagan, who was like the media darling, kind of smartest man in the world, kind of media figure that would always be on, on the screen to represent the scientists, you know, and he's in these think tanks, direct lineage to the Rand Corporation, the uh, the hydrogen bomb, the Doctor Strange Love, exactly those people, all the all the Hungarian Nazis that were brought back after World War II. And what was Carl Sagan doing? He was researching all the different aerosols that that cr- produce global cooling. He was researching all the aerosols that cause global cooling finding out all of them, what are they? How, how fast can they cool the globe? Because that's the menace. That's the crisis narrative of that time, of the 1980s. Uh, it's wild for me. You know, I had heard that word maybe, but never really heard it again after my childhood and never heard what the content of it even was until I read that Two Young Badass thread. Uh, I, it's, an amazing, it's amazing to remember. There was a whole time when the big crisis was global cooling, we're going to have a nuclear war, uh, or more likely you could just fucking incinerate all the major cities on Earth in the event of a revolution, and so on, uh, with the space lasers that they were building supposedly to protect us from the ICBMs, from the hydrogen bombs, right? But actually the laser just allows you to, if you think in terms of class struggle, it allows you to take out the step of the nuclear bomb entirely of the, the equation, right? But then that would, it, these enormous fires would somehow produce different aerosols, you know, and, and for reference to this, they were studying the clouds of dust on Mars and so on, right? Well, so that was what all the noise was then. Uh, and I think they really did, you know, I think they really did research global cooling and how to bring it about uh, because that's the kill switch that they're going to need for when they finally decide they've killed enough of us with uh, climate change. How about that? Mm, this is getting real wet out there. You, you just came to hear about the tale of Genji, but here we're getting into this, huh? Um, pretty wild, right? No, that, now, again, this is not to say global warming is not happening. I think it's happening, and I think it's happening on purpose. Gordon MacDonald, U.S. Army contractor, scientist, uh, who first got in, in front of the Capitol steps and said, the ocean is going to rise up to here, and held up his hand. Of course, w- you kn- if you know the science of global warming, you know that it, the air is much scarier than the ocean, first of all. I mean, of course, the ocean changing, the way that it's changing right now, is going to murder all kinds of life on Earth uh, and have cataclysmic effects and be very horrible. But, you know, we're going to die first from the air quality changes, right, before the ocean comes up. But anyway, uh, he was a scientist researching how to use carbon as a weapon against enemy countries. Now, of course, this is a ridiculous proposition while it has that framing, while it has that little veneer and veil over it, right? But you just remove the veneer of enemy country and reveal enemy class. When the ruling class, uh, the capitalists, Want, decide that it's time to get rid of the rest of us, well, then they can use carbon 
as a weapon. You can create global warming, and it will destabilize, destroy crops, it will massively depopulate a region, destroy economies, and so on. Right? And that's important to remember. You can't be dogmatic and think that uh, the ruling class cares unconditionally about even something so apparently basic as keeping the economy going, right? They are the capitalist ruling class for now, but capitalism may not be long for this world. Either way, one way or another, right? And they know this. They know this. So, yeah, I didn't really mean to get into this in this episode, but it's, it's in the front, forefront of my mind, and I want on a free episode, maybe, to spread the word here, because... I want people to understand that it removes a certain kind of fear and it removes a certain kind of guilt that complex that I think is deliberately implanted by means of this crisis narrative, that these things are natural uh, products of human development inevitably, you know, and not of the way that that development has been arranged and engineered and even stifled by the ruling class, right? And humanity has been misengineered Right? It's been deliberately, artificially uh, created to be the way that it, that it is in this way. And hey, here's our little transition. Uh, one of the ways in which it's been engineered very early on, one of the first big changes was the death of mo- mother right and the birth of father right. Because um, what you see in other primates... Uh, really most other primates on the family level, even very violent primates like eastern chimpanzees. You know, I'm learning again from Arnold about the difference. Uh, The western chimpanzees are are beginning to be better known in recent years. Uh, They're sort of like halfway to bonobos in this respect, right? Bonobos famously are very matriarchal. A young male bonobo without a female backer to protect him is going to be beaten up. He's going to get the head boxed off of him by uh, female relatives who are slightly smaller on average than uh, bonobo males, incidentally. So nothing to do with physical body size. It's, it does correlate with abundance of food, right? And so that would show us, again, that validates the communist, uh, the basic communist point about abundance. As we get more abundance, it becomes easier and easier to just have a total egalitarian society, right? And maybe it was easy to begin with in in a lot of places. And as long as mother right is recognized, you're going to have inheritance of property within the clan of that mother, right? And inheritance doesn't go... Children are primarily raised by their mother and her brothers. Her brothers will will play a prominent role, usually, right? Uh, But the actual father of the children, actual, you know, uh, the source of the gametes, anyway. uh, Well, I mean, he has a role in a lot of these societies, but uh, he doesn't necessarily live with the mother's clan. And children have a much richer family life in this way. You know, we got into this, the last time we got deep into this was the episode on Chushingura. Uh, again, right, the, the first private property, I think is what I called it. 
And I think I discussed there the kinds of conversations that are reported between Portuguese missionaries and indigenous peoples in Brazil, where they try to tell them about God. Oh, he's like a father, right? You know how your father beats up your mother if she, she doesn't do what he says and uh, all of this? He'll spank you. No, I don't have a father. I have, you know, they have many fathers. They have a whole galaxy of different uh, kinship relationships, much more complex than a, a family, the familias, right? Um, the actual familias in Latin, this is something that Engels points out, right? The term was invented by the Romans to denote a new social organism whose head ruled over wife and children and a number of slaves, um, right? Familia id est patrimonium, right? The patrimony. Um, familia, like famulus means a slave, domestic slave, right? So familia is the, the group of slaves that you own, in fact. It's a very different sort of system, isn't it? Right? And so, um, you know, this, this uh, in some sense, earlier, right? Uh, again, I want to resist that because we could go back there. Maybe we should. I don't know. You know, this is, com this is uh, complicated by things like black male studies. That's a, an interesting thing that it's worth uh, sitting with. Right. Um, it's it, that's a, it's a very controversial topic and it's not for me to get into black people's business uh, too far. But as I understand it, the a lot of the cultures that American black people, when they were enslaved and so on, they came from cultures that were very matrilineal or matriarchal, you might say, in, in a lot of ways, right? Uh, then combine that with the experience of enslavement, the, the particular way that black men are sexualized in American society. Uh, they are in a position of actually being subject to gender discrimination for their gender, okay? As a man, because... Uh, for subject populations in general, to some extent, right? I mean, this, this would be the same thing with, like, the Asian fetish, perhaps. Uh, the, the woman of the, the subordinate population is seen as salvageable, as, you know, able to assimilate in a way that the man is not. And the best thing to do is separate the man from the woman, separate the children from the parents, you know, hence the so-called Indian schools, and then maybe you're able to save the man and kill the Indian, or as they say, right? Um, well, there's, you know, gender-wise, there's a similar kind of separation breaking up that is practiced, right? And this is a weapon, you know. Uh, and that's definitely what we don't want to do. You know, when we would say abolish the family, we'd be talking about the family as the the collection of famu, famuli, right? The... the uh, collection of slaves that you have, you know, uh, that's the kind of family that we would want to get away from, right? Because you can't, uh, there's nothing about the, especially the post-war picket fence, middle-class, uh, settler family that is going to get you through and is going to save you, uh, in the end game of class struggle that we are in. You can't just retreat to, to that, you know, I mean, we have some, opportunists out here who get, you know, social fascist kind of, and they sort of say, oh, look at the perversion of whatever. 
sure enough, we need to just retreat to the picket fence patriarchy uh, and be anti-trans and so on. You know, this is extremely prevalent among anyone who has any kind of anti-American consciousness in Japan, unfortunately, here in Japan. Anybody who would question, like, imperial narratives, uh, which, you know, the Japanese Communist Party is at the opposite of end of the spectrum on that question. They go along with every NED-approved uh, foreign policy point. But um, at least they're good on uh, the family and... and uh, social issues in general, right? So you have this split, you know, and they, they are careful to split. Make sure that the, the, the battery doesn't get ever hooked up to both poles of the battery. You've got to keep them separate. Never let them come together, right? Because that would be a combination that could really get going and make some changes and really be um, effective, right? So I guess that's the thing to aim for. But my point here is that abolish the family means go in, in, in another way, uh, speaking provisionally, uh, we would say enrich the family, bring it, um, bring it back to the full like, galaxies of relationships and, and broader kinship, right? And, of course, that's exactly all the stuff that Alexandra Kollontai was all talking about uh, during the, who lived through the Russian Revolution, served on the first Central Committee of the Soviet Union together with Lenin, later had a falling out with Lenin, but was largely concerned throughout her career in thinking about what does post-revolutionary kinship look like, right? And of course there is kinship and it's going to be better. It's going to be way better, way more connected. You're going to have more connections, more meaning, more human flourishing, that is what is possible when, again, your family structure is not all structured to pass down private property and serve uh, the ruling class, which is exactly what we saw in Chushingura, right? I mean, it's not only is patriarchy there about serving, uh, passing down property, but, but about serving the Lord, right? Sacrificing. The main character learns he's redeemed uh, in the eyes of the play by learning to sacrifice his wife, sacrifice, right, his whole family and his, and his own life too, uh, to the Lord. But just in case this is your first rodeo, what is the overthrow of mother right? The overthrow of mother right was the world historical defeat of the female sex. The man took command in the home also. The woman was degraded and reduced to servitude. She became the slave of his lust and a mere instrument for the production of children. This degraded position of the woman, especially conspicuous among the Greeks of the heroic and still more of the classical age, has gradually been prettified and glossed over and sometimes clothed in a milder form, but in no sense has it been abolished. The establishment of the exclusive supremacy of the man shows its effects first in the patriarchal family, which now emerges as an intermediate form. Its essential characteristic is not polygyny, many wives, of which more later, but the organization of a number of persons bond and free into a family under paternal power for the purpose of holding lands and for the care of flocks and herds. You know, so if you have private property now and you really want to pass it down to a male heir, well, now you've got to create that male heir that you know is your child and no one else's. And, right, so that's the inverse of the kind of Brazilian indigenous 
large family where really every child that's born into a community is the child of every adult man in that community. And everyone would contribute equally to raising that child. And so that child would think of themselves as having any number of fathers, right? Uh, whereas the mother is, is really the singular presence, right? Where you have one, one mother. And then property in that sort of system is going to go down, go down along the female line, right? right? And so then, again, the brother of the mother also fulfills a great important role and the father of the mother also fulfills a very important role right um, so just to get to a bit of a thesis statement here actually huh uh, in the tale of Genji there is a famous scene called the rainy night critique of ranks and Prince Genji who's kind of the main character of the novel uh, it's a big long novel right it dates to it's probably complete by about 1008 or 1009 or something like this right i remember there was a 1000 year anniversary event around 2008 or 2009 or something this novel is told all from the point of view of different female serving uh p servants around palaces among the aristocracy in the capital of Japan at that time called Heian. So uh, it was a very hierarchical, feudal society, and you have here the society, the, the everyday psychology and ins and outs and aesthetic uh, preferences and s Baroque social considerations of these uh, very prissy patriarchs there in uh, the capital of a grain state. Yeah. Uh, we get some views that sometimes, uh, you know, I think I won't get into this, but we get views of people in the provinces and sort of they're considered to be just absolute another planet. You know, they could not possibly, there's definitely no nationalism, right, in a, in a society like this. Uh, we're in the capital, right? And, and this novel is, is sort of different episodes. Sometimes it shifts, actually, to different groups of serving ladies holding the camera, as it were. I know I've discussed before uh, Japanese grammar having this very different structure from Indo-European or, or also Semitic, um, Afro-Asiatic grammar, where you have person, number, gender being grammatical categories. So you always know... Well, I mean, you know, right? It's, it's very specific in other ways, is Japanese grammar. But um, the very complex uh, forms, uh, systems of tense, mood, kind of mood uh, verbals, verbal endings that tell you about is the information known firsthand? Is it heard orally? Is it guessed through visual information? Is it uh, instantaneous? Is it ongoing? Is it thought to maybe be ongoing based on what someone said? Uh, you know, very specific in, the, in these regards, right? But not as specific about I, you, he, she. And so Genji is uh, this prince who is born, and he is maybe sort of modeled on the real-life figure who Murasaki Shikibu, the, the author of The Tale of Genji, definitely knew in real life. There's, there's stories in her diary about dealing with uh, this guy, Fujiwara Michinaga. Fujiwara no Michinaga was, you know, he himself is on record saying, you know, I was born 
I, he says something like I, oh, I forget the exact phrase. It's I don't know, like I'm the sun and the moon or something. Like, yeah, I'm just the most fortunate person that's ever lived, uh, because he really, really uh, played the game of Fujiwara marriage politics perfectly, and this game involves marrying your daughter or daughters to the emperor and thereby having the emperor sire. Uh, a future emperor on your daughters, and you become the grandfather of an emperor, which is the most, most powerful person in the country. Because Japan at that time practiced matrilocal marriage, right? And usually it is not spoken as practicing matriline, as many of the other examples that I will briefly discuss. Uh, are discussed in this way. You know, it's not discussed in that way. And the history of that is interesting, too. Of course, we've touched on that before, the way that Japan aims for a kind of honorary whiteness beginning in the 19th century, in some ways, in some ways, right? But, uh, that is the end point of it anyway. I don't want to think of it teleologically. There were a lot of other possibilities, but that's the way it ends up in the post-war and then American Cold War imperatives turn it very much into a kind of foil for Western civilization that is nevertheless, it's totally different, but also its endpoint is capitalism, specifically liberal social democracy and so on. And a big player in creating this image was our favorite weeb of the ages, Ivan Morris. And one of his most famous books is actually not the one about uh, tragic figures. It's The World of the Shining Prince, which is a whole guide to the world of the Tale of Genji, because the Tale of Genji was scheduled to be held up as the quintessence of Japanese culture. This was a peaceful, uh, maybe semi-matriarchal, uh, but not really. You know, it's not that he doesn't let it be that. He doesn't let it be that, you know, and that's kind of, that's one thing I want to point out here. We'll get deeper into him. But so the scene that I want to discuss is called the Rainy Night Critique of Ranks. Genji and his friends, including actually the brother, the eldest brother of his official wife, uh, who was, they both were betrothed as children. They don't particularly like each other. Usually the, the woman would be older, and that's also the case for him. Genji is married to a woman named Aoi no Ue as his main wife, uh, and she's much older than him, and she doesn't feel good about uh, this marrying this little boy. Uh, but that was very common, right? There's, I, I actually wonder, you know, I was discussing this in general, I wonder if there isn't rethinking to be done here. You know, especially about earlier time periods, we tend to project back in real particular ways. And the newest stuff that I remember reading in grad school about the ancient period is just saying, well, you know, they knew what could happen, maybe, is the suggestion with the Fujiwara marriage politics, which was where the Fujiwara family was always trying to marry its daughters into the imperial family and thereby ends up in control of it, basically, takes it over, sort of parasitically pilots it through these regencies, you know. You, know, you, give, you get your daughter to give birth to the boy emperor, and then you reign as regent as the boy's grandfather. And that's who actually runs the country in any given reign. 
the Soga family had also done this earlier. But then before that, what we actually find is within the imperial family, it was very common for a boy to marry his aunt. Uh, that was extremely common. So once again, we have the kind of, in, in modern Japan, we'd say anegoha, which means you're uh, um, you, you like a big sister. You're the big sister loving type. Uh, that's, a, that's a term for a man who is into older women. Um, they, those emperors, they loved their older sister types for sure. So, uh, but what that does is actually turn the family tree into kind of a braid structure where you never get uh, an extraneous woman coming in and thereby enabling uh, a takeover by an, another clan, right? But I wonder if we really take seriously the idea of matriline and maybe matriarchal power even in earlier periods of Japanese history, if that picture wouldn't change. Is there, what, what is really happening here? Was there a time when, you know, a, a daughter being married into a powerful family would act not only as the instrument of the men of her own family, but in fact as an actor in her own right? I, I'm sure we can posit some earlier stage. I don't know. Maybe not. You know, these things are very complicated, and we're going to see here all kinds of systems can coexist with each other, and once again, human beings are plastic. We can adopt ourselves to many, many different ways of living, uh, even when you think in a very material way, scientific way, you can see the ways that uh, we have freedom, and that's why we can build the kingless generation. So maybe that's as good a thesis statement as any. And here, let's get into it. So we're at the beginning of the second chapter of the tale of Genji. The first chapter, Genji is born. His mother and her relationship with the emperor is introduced. And he's born and he's just uh, unspeakably beautiful. And he has some... uh, It's The first chapter is more unproblematically heroic and so on. And the second chapter begins with a more satirical uh, statement of intent, as if, like, you know, we're going to keep on changing the perspective. We're going to actually look at this society from below in, a, in a, a big way. That's a lot of the fun of the tale of Genji, is that it's the servant women who are looking. It's almost like the displaced matriarchs are looking from the side, you know. But in so, there's so many matriarchal systems that are still in place here. If you wanted to look at it, as a a move away from matriarchy to patriarchy, you totally could read it that way, right? And there is, you know, in the Kamakura period, the 12th century, 13th century, with the breakdown of the Heian court and the the Ritsuryo state, which was a East Asian-style kind of Chinese-inspired grain state based on a bureaucracy, Confucian-style state bureaucracy, which provides land to all citizens, uh, you know, for free. I mean, it's a grain state, so that's your, that's your job. That's your means of production that are being handed out to you to, to produce uh, grain from which taxes will be collected and so on, right? That's the system. But that system gradually was taken over by provincial governors whom the central government was con- content to allow to collect the taxes, uh, collect the rice, 
And uh, they would then treat that rice pretty much as their personal income. And the central government was more and more content to let them do that, and they begin to function as feudal lords, rather than the very bureaucratic system that had prevailed uh, thus far, which you could, you could really compare in interesting ways to like the Soviet Union. If the Soviet Union was state capitalist, right, in its revisionist uh, form that it ultimately took, unfortunately, um, well, you could call uh, the Heian court um, state feudalist, right? Because it's not petty lords that are very independent, right? It is all happening according to a, a bureaucracy and kind of a rule-based order, right? At least at first. So, uh, yeah, we begin. Shining Genji, the name was imposing, but not so its bearers many deplorable lapses. And considering how quiet he kept his wanton ways, lest in reaching the ears of posterity they earn him unwelcome fame, whoever broadcast his secrets to all the world was a terrible gossip. So that would be the, the narrator herself, right? <laughs> it's the terrible gossip. Um, or the narrator of chapter one, and then chapter two, the narrator of chapter two is chastising the narrator of chapter one. Is that, that how we should read it? Um, so w what we have here is like this, this matrix of women who live in different rooms, right? In the palace and in their, their mansions and so on. And uh, the men then go to visit them at different nights, right? And there, there's a conceit that they're doing so secretly, but everybody knows kind of what they're doing. Uh, and if they get, the whether or not they get to quote-unquote secretly sneak into the room of any given woman is usually determined by her serving ladies who will receive a letter from the, a note from the prospective suitor and scope out his handwriting mainly, what kind of paper is it written on? Is it perfumed? And so on. You know, these markers of taste and social capital uh, will often be determining factors. Physical beauty is not uh, so important, right? Um, although we'll see in this chapter, you know, I mean, I mean, that's the whole thing about shining Genji. He's supposed to be very, very beautiful. So maybe that is uh, overstated sometimes, but uh, people often remind us how... You know, you're talking about palaces that are very dark, uh, all these folding screens everywhere, space is, is restricted in very carefully in all kinds of ways, right? Area denial is, is used. Maybe we'll have to deal with something. If you are listening to this podcast five years, ten years from now, and you're living in a smart city, you may have to, in the middle of a, a radioactive landscape or a climate change landscape, you're in some geodesic dome, I don't know, you, you may be dealing with a similar situation yourself, living in a claustrophobic uh, little court. And we have so many cases, you know, I'm, I'm not going to be able to deal with any of these in any detail, but I spent probably too much time looking into different parallel cases across South Asia and Southeast Asia. You know, there are people who theorize that this is maybe uh, part of uh, the southern... So Ivan Morris puts it, the, the southern strain in the Japanese race, uh, right? I don't know. You know, I, I think all humanity has probably uh, some amount of matriarchal memory in it. But uh, across India, you have um, Nayar, which are a group of castes, uh, and they 
live in the uh, area of Kerala. Kerala is also a place where the Communist Party has been very strong, right? Continues to be a great base. They live in large family units called Taravads that house descendants of one common female ancestor. So fairly recently, I think late 20th century, this was finally abolished, right? Uh, but there would be, a woman would have a room uh, where men could come and visit, right, at night. And uh, the men would continue to live with their matrilineal families, right, centered around women. And um, women or children that would be born then uh, would be raised in their mother's family by their mother's brothers primarily, right? You have also... Um, Meghalaya in uh, northeast India, okay? And that's where the Khasi people live. The Khasi people, um, they actually speak an Austroasiatic language, which would connect them to, um, like, Mon Khmer is also an Austroasiatic uh, family. Vietnam, Vietnamese, right, is there as well. As you go east, yeah? Uh, that's the cool thing, too, about uh, the line between Vietnamese and Khmer, uh, or Cam- the Cambodian language, right, is really about which script do you use. Do you use the Chinese script, or are you in part of the Sanskrit sphere, right? Because Cambodia is, is part of the Sanskrit sphere. Yeah. But so the Khasi people, it's in that that bit of territory connected to India that sort of juts out to the east and is connected by a tiny little strip of land. Uh, I'd love to learn more about the history of that, what's going on there. Uh, but, you know, this, is, this just gives you a little taste of the tremendous diversity, in fact, of India and the impossibility of the imposition by Modi's Hindu fascism of, of some kind of totally unified uh, Hindu nationalism, right? It's just such a diverse place. By, by its nature. And most of humanity is that way. And, and most of humanity can be that way again when we don't have to be moving according to the dictates of capital and the division of labor, right? There's a global division of labor, right? And this is, this is imperialism. That doesn't have to happen anymore. Uh, and then, you know, to the extent uh, that human activity just naturally did cause uh, the environmental crisis, the global warming, right? It will not cause it again when we have local production for local use, right? Uh, amid all kinds of diverse life ways, which are restored. Right? This is why land back is actually the immediate emergency measure that must be taken, uh, particularly in settler colonies like Turtle Island, in order to uh, save us from the ongoing environmental catastrophe. Although if you can find Carl Sagan's um, recipes for his uh, global cooling aerosols, that would help too, wouldn't it? So all around the world, we have many different matriarchal societies remaining to various degrees. And, you know, there's so much resistance toward recognizing these as matriarchal, I think is interesting. Uh, you know, of course, it's not like men have nothing to do in these societies. And it's so uh, the observer, the biases of the observer seeing these is, is going to read in all kinds of things that might not really be there. Right. 
And then you have, of course, the colonial situation always creates problems, like I mentioned with the black male studies uh, issue, right? Like, you know, you have a similar thing among like the Kasi people and in Kerala, where there are some sort of like men's rights activists, like, uh, and of course, the Western press, you know, has a field day with that, uh, them saying sort of in a colonial situation, but there might be something to that, right? There might be something to that, just like there is something to that uh, with black folks in Anglo settler colonies, right? Uh, there is something to that because, you know, the, the white uh, literary class loves nothing better than to elevate and amplify the voices of black women who will say all the nastiest, most racist things about black men, right? There's such a market for that. And uh, there's been a lot said about people like Bell Hooks, right? It's not for me to wade too deep into that, I don't think, but... Uh, Go go check it out. There's there's something there. So, uh, Rennie Touré is is a great voice on Twitter for this perspective, right? Uh, Doctor Tommy Curry, I believe, is the more senior uh, member of that community. So, like, I don't know. You know, every people will have to work out their sex gender system, just like they will work out their economy according to the principles of national self-determination and recovering settlers like you and me, uh, we're going to have a great time just joining and naturalizing and doing what we can to help uh, with those communities, right? When I'm here in Japan, I have to go through immigration. I have to register as a a resident alien. And uh, yeah, that's the way it's going to work. But everything the economy will be in much more capable hands when it comes to environmental stewardship and when it comes to truly loving the land like from the from the heart and so i would expect that some societies would uh you know something closer to maybe some of these matrilineal matrilocal societies might emerge in a lot of places and i think uh, again anyone that doesn't uh understand that and that fetishizes the picket fence nuclear family of the fucking post-war social democracy you know class compromise is is sleeping on angles first of all doesn't understand the deep history of class struggle uh doesn't understand their paleo parapolitics right so they need to um check this out check out the tailgate so now uh i think We're getting up on an hour here, and I think it's safe to say that anybody that just came around to hear about the tale of Genji will have checked out long ago uh, if my strategy has succeeded. So here we go. So Genji is still a captain, and he felt at home nowhere but in the palace. That's that's his father's house because his father is the emperor. Okay. Um, Notice typical matrilocal, matrilineal setup. A man stays with his family right? He would take care of the children of his sisters in general, right? Uh, there's going to be a lot of exceptions to that in this society, and I think you could see this as a society in transition for that reason. Um, and Genji, he went to his excellencies only now and then. His excellency is the minister of the left. Uh, you have the ministry of the left and the ministry of the right in this Confucian bureaucracy. 
So Genji is supposed to be at the minister of the left's house because that's the father of Aoi no Ue. That's his main wife. And he has he was married to betrothed at, you know, in, in early childhood, I think, and married to her when he did his coming of age ceremony, which would have been age 12 or something. Right. And so his kind of like boomer, uh, I hate my wife kind of thing. Uh, it consists in not wanting to spend all his time at her family's house as he is supposed to do. And so he stays at, and that's going to be the entire reason why the characters are together to have this long conversation about uh, what kind of women do they like best, basically. And it's this fascinating window into this world of uh, a very prissy kind of patriarchy here. We're going to see. So uh, he has a, a great friend in this, though, and that's his friend Tono Chujo. Tono Chujo is married to the daughter of the minister of the right. And Tono Chujo is also, though, the brother of Aoi no Ue. So he, in, in worst cases, you know, uh, a, a husband and a brother of the bride could be, could be in, a, in an antagonistic relationship. They would be two people who might butt heads because uh, in the older matrilineal society, the, the uncle, of course, would be the one raising the, the children of, of the woman, right? Of his sister, yeah? Is that why there's so many myths about, you know, Hamlet and, and all that, right? There's so many, like, the uncle usurping the place of the father. Does this have some deep resonance for a lot of, of people because they have some ancestral memory of the transition from matriarchy to patriarchy. I don't know, maybe so, right? But here, you know, these two, they're, they're great buds. They're great friends, uh, right? And, you know, Genji's not in such a bad... They, he, the family of Aoi no Ue sometimes suspected him as, of being... Uh, quote, all in a hopeless tangle, this is a quote from a famous poem, over another woman, but actually he had no taste for frivolous, trite, or impromptu affairs. Um, so he's not in a, in a big uh, affair with anybody else just yet, although he will be. And of course, that was considered, you know, par for the course and refined as well, even if they didn't love it, you know, um, to be... Uh, as long as the main wife was was recognized, had her rights and prerogatives recognized as the main wife, uh, they would be happy. But And so they send him clothing of every kind. Even though he doesn't come to their house often and he's still in the palace where his father lives, they send him clothing of every kind and in the height of fashion. And his brothers-in-law spent all their time at the palace in his rooms. And Tono Chujo is one of those, right? Um... Right. One of those, her highness's son, and like Genji, a captain, was a particularly close friend with whom he shared music and other amusements more willingly than with anyone else. The residence of the minister of the right, where the young man was looked after so gladly, that's because, again, that's his wife's house, thoroughly depressed him, that residence, and, and he had a marked taste for romantic forays elsewhere. I just said four ways, didn't I? No, there's no, um, there's no actually four-way sex in the Tale of Genji. Uh, sorry to disappoint you. Uh, there, there is one time when Genji and Tono Chujo realize that they have just visited and had sex with the same older lady. 
and uh, they have a good laugh about that. That's not considered, you know, super embarrassing for them. It's just like, ah, ha, ha, funny. Now, white settlers like myself, you know, there's that term which is based on a slur, of course, but, you know, wouldn't, wouldn't they call that Eskimo brothers sometimes? And doesn't that come from the fact that, yeah, a lot of the indigenous societies on Turtle Island were matriarchal to varying degrees, right? You got your Haudenosaunee, you got, right, and the, and the women would have been in charge of agriculture, right? So they did hunting and gathering and also agriculture. Um, so the women are in charge of the main food supply. And if anything, meat that comes in from the men is an extra. They don't need it to survive. All the longhouses where people live are run exclusively by councils of women. On the other side of it, you have the men are in charge of the secret societies, the ritual societies, and those have a regional character. They have a trans-clan character. They, people get together over larger distances and so on. So there you, you do have um, men. I mean, it's just a different facet of society that they get together and they have more predominance in, yeah? So... The kingless generation may work similarly in some places. Hey. So Tono Chujo is avoiding his in-law's house, right? And uh, he's looking through some of the letters. The, the, there's love letters all over Genji's cabinet. And Tono Chujo starts looking at them. Oh, you, you must uh, get so many uh, good love letters. I'd love to look through these, he sort of says, right? Um, and, uh, of course, as he well knew, Genji would hardly leave the important ones, the ones that must be kept secret, lying about on a shelf in plain view. He would have put them away somewhere out of sight, which meant that these must be of only minor interest. What a variety, he exclaimed as he glanced over each, guessing at the sender and getting her now right, now quite wrong. So letters like these would not have been signed. Uh, they would be sent anonymously by page boys and, and other um, media like that, right? And usually the, the messenger would go and, and wait for you to send a reply to bring it right back, you know? So there'd be a, a morning after letter, of course, would be uh, a core duty after a man had spent the night in some lady's room and he goes off home. Right, going sneaking off, sort of sneaking, but you don't really have to sneak. The walk of shame for these men, you know, not not so shameful, really. Right, uh, that's their job. They're busy little bees fluttering around all the different flowers, and the women would have been then cultivated with all the resources of their clan to just pour into them all the resources to educate them, and that's why around these women would grow these literary salons. Right. So, you know, all the major literary figures from the Heian period are women from these kinds of salons. Some of them were contemporaries and they worked for rival salons, rival princesses, educating them and, and increasing their reputation by uh, doing great uh, literary activities, memorizing poems of the uh, imperial collections and uh, holding perfume guessing contests and things like this, right? And so they're they're hanging around on this rainy night in the palace. And uh, the, a guy called the secretary captain then took the occasion to observe, I have finally realized how rarely you will find a flawless woman, one who is simply perfect, 
No doubt there are many who seem quite promising, write a flowing hand, give you back a perfectly acceptable poem, and all in all do credit enough to the rank they have to uphold. But you know, if you insist on any particular quality, you seldom find one who will do. Each one is all too pleased with her own accomplishments, run others down, and so on. While a girl is under the eye of her adoring parents and living a sheltered life bright with future promise, it seems men have only to hear of some little talent of hers to be attracted. As long as she is pretty and innocent, and young enough to have nothing else on her mind, she may well put her heart into learning a pastime that she has seen others enjoy, and in fact she may become quite good at it. And when those who know her, that is, her gentlewomen, her, her staff around her, disguise her weaknesses and advertise whatever passable qualities she may have so as to present them in the best light, how could anyone think ill of her, having no reason to suspect her of being other than she seems? But when you look further to see whether it is all true, I am sure you can only end up disappointed. So that's a great example of the wandering sentences that you have in the tale of Genji. They go on for pages and pages. And as I said, you know, there's no person, number, gender, or tense. So uh, honorifics is a major way that you know who is being discussed. You have to know the social hierarchy uh, and, and the scene there and, and who would be being referred to by the highest honorifics and the middle honorifics and the lower ones, right? Those, that's what services in, in place of pronouns. I think I've said before that uh, even today, th it plays a core role, you know, and if you, if you learn Japanese from a normal kind of textbook, th they won't teach you that until the very end of the book. But in fact, it can be very crucial to uh, establishing who you're talking about, w your use of honorifics, right? So somebody who doesn't know how to use them at all can be very hard to understand. Like, wh who are you talking about, right? So they go on, you know, talking about all this, this different class stuff. And so this conversation is extremely fascinating for us, right? So Genji replies, But do you suppose any girl could have nothing to recommend her? Who would be fool enough to be taken in by one as hopeless as that? This is the secretary captain replying, I think. I am sure that the utter failure with nothing to commend her and the one so superior as to be a wonder are equally rare. When a girl is high-born... Everyone pampers her, and the lot about her remains hidden, so that she naturally seems a paragon. Those of middle birth are the ones among whom you can see what a girl really has to offer, and find ways to distinguish one from another. As for the lowborn, they hardly matter. So you can see, I mean, definitely there's a point past which they wouldn't think about it at all. Uh, but the... Middleborn. This is really. There's this interesting kind of interest here, uh, and they'd be talking about provincial governor level women, and this is this new ascendant proto feudal class. Actually, these are the f the feudal lords who will emerge later from the provincial governor class, and this is the class that Murasaki Shikibu belongs to. In fact, her father was posted in the countryside. And she had a not-so-successful marriage out there and came back to the capital to serve in the entourage, uh, the literary salon of a certain imperial princess uh, of, of uh, Fujiwara no Michinaga, on whom you know, Genji seems to be partly based as sort of the, the aristocrat of all aristocrats who sort of just 
conquered the, broke the game, broke the meta. Oh, and so, you know, in the most famous manga adaptation of Genji, which is Asaki Yume Mishi, I also looked at this scene. It's very short, and it's distilled to basically just saying, like, in this period of time, in, in our era, it looks like this is going to be the era of the middle class. And it's just very, like, post-war, you know, post-war class compromise. Go middle class. Uh, you know, not very historical there. Definitely not talking about the same thing at all. So the secretary captain's apparent familiarity with his subject aroused Genji's curiosity. I wonder about these levels of yours, though. The high, the middle, and the low. How can you tell who belongs to which? Some are born high and yet fall and sink to become nobodies. While common gentlemen rise to become senior nobles, pride themselves on the way they do up their houses, and insist on conceding nothing to anyone. How can you draw the line between these two? So there were, uh, like, Naobito. These would be gentlemen of the fourth or fifth rank. Not, not so far down, the common gentlemen, right? So just then, the chief left equerry, like the master of the horses, and the Fujiwara aid of ceremonial came in to join the seclusion. The secretary captain welcomed both as enterprising lovers as well as great talkers, and they went straight into a heated discussion of how to tell women of one level from those of another. They told some astonishing stories. The secretary captain declared, On the subject of those who rise high without being born to it, society does not actually feel quite the same about them. Despite their rank, while as for those who once stood high but now lack means, times turn bad and they decline until they have nothing left but their pride and suffer endless misfortune, either group, I think, belongs to the middle grade. Even among those known as governors, whose function it is to administer the provinces. Uh, so there, here's this class now. Um, in, this is the Royal Tyler translation, which is the best by far. He really preserves the long sentences and preserves the social hierarchy and the, all the perspectives that go with that. So I do recommend it. But here, uh, the original is even more kind of crunchy. It goes something like, Hito no kuni nazo osametaru, something, you know? So, like, people who go and govern other people's countries. Uh, you know, the word is for country or kingdom, right? Uh, so the scale here, it's, you know, these are not nationalists. They don't have any sense of Japanese nationalism. They're very much, you know, Heian, the capital, is the only thing that matters, the only place that counts. And the people there are the only people who count. And, you know, oh, some of them go out into, like, some other places, you know. Oh, fucking, you know. And they don't even, I mean, it doesn't even register what those places are, right? Might as well be foreign lands. They are foreign lands. Literally, that's the, the language that's used. Uh, and they govern those, you know. I don't know. Something like that. There's people like that. It's a very kind of lazy language. Uh, again, fine. There are fine distinctions for, like, how much you know something you're saying right? And there's, there's a particle like that used in the original there, I remember. Um, so there's long, long discussions, you know, mostly Genji is just staying quiet and then putting in the, the he's cool as a cucumber, he'll just put in a comment now and then. And, and so after another long speech, he says, I suppose the thing is to keep an eye out for a father with means, Genji said, smiling. And the secretary captain grumbled, I do not know how you can say that. It doesn't sound like you at all. So there's kind of like 
Genji has a little bit of self, like self-awareness and, and ironic distance from the, the little bumblebee role that they're playing here, going around and choosing the best women on behalf of their own class, uh, you know, interest, right? That's the game that's going on here. So, when a girl's rank at birth and her reputation agree, the chief equerry observed, when she commands general respect but is still disappointing in her person and her behavior, you obviously cannot help wondering sadly why she turned out like that. You know, this, the men too, you know, once they have their own daughters, all their energies are going to be put into spiffing up those daughters to make them as attractive as possible for other little bumblebees coming by to land on their, their prized flower, their prized petunias. Anyway, the really fascinating girl is the one of whom no one has ever heard, the strangely appealing one who lives by herself, hidden away in some ruinous, overgrown old house. Because never having expected anyone like her, you wonder what she is doing there and cannot help wanting to know her better. Her father is a miserable, fat old man. Her brother's face is none too prepossessing either. Notice that. We want a brother who looks good. We want a brother that we can love as well, right? That is a thing, right? Because the brother, you've got to get along with him. He's going to be raising your children half the time a little bit more, right? This is matrilineal. This is matrilocal marriage, right? This is not recognized very much uh, in Japan. And most Japanese people have no idea about this. It's at least, you know, the caliber of, I don't know, the caliber of students that I teach at my sleepy little university, uh, tend to not know that full-on patriarchy begins in the 12th, 13th century, the Kamakura period, right? And that's the, pro, that's the epilogue here, right? Uh, I'll get that out right now. Um, somebody in the, in the Discord sort of asked uh, if, if I do outlining or scripts or whatever, you know. Uh, you can tell, no, I, you know, barely, outlining would be the most I'd ever do. Um, I tend to just speak off the cuff and go in circles and, you know, think tangential thinking. This is the, this is the strength of this, right? You, you, can, you can move freely, supple, supple discourse, yeah? So, uh, yeah, the, the oie seido is what it's called, the, the ie system, the, the house system, literally, right? Um, the system of the house, and, and that is cent- fully centered around the male lineage, and that becomes... Uh, the full on the system when Japan enters its Middle Ages, enters a full kind of feudal system with uh, lords and so on. You know, I know it's it's the fashion in in Japanese history to say it's not feudalism, um, but it's also the fashion in European history to say it's not feudalism. So I don't know where fucking feudalism ever really happened. Um, everyone likes to say it's not real commun it's not real communism, it's not real capitalism, it's not real feudalism. I don't know. There's no, there's no ideal. There's no platonic ideal anyway, anywhere. Um, and that's good. That's good. It's really cool to see all these different currents and all these flows coming back and forth, right? Uh, all of our ideas are provisional in some way, right? We're, our, our test, and we should be ready to abandon them at any time. This is a public open science, right? The, the immortal science of building the kingless generation is based on dialectical materialism. So we're scientific, uh, and we work from the material, and uh, we abandon our concepts are only provisional, right? Expedient means, Sanskrit uh, would be upaya for that, right? 
but we can definitely use that here, right? It's, we're moving toward a feudal system where we have those governor, that governor class, begins to treat more and more the rice income from those provinces as his own private property. And by and by, you have the birth of what's known as the show-end system in economics. Uh, the show-end system is, I mean, like a plantation would be the translation for show-end, right? Uh, but basically, yeah, large uh, it, manorial estates would be another translation that's current in medieval studies, yeah, in Japan. So, uh, but yeah, the, this is the kind of person out of the governor class, right? Her father is a miserable, fat old man. Her brother's face is none too prepossessing either. And there she is in the woman's quarters, far at the back, where you expect nothing unusual, proud, spirited, and giving a touch of distinction to everything she does. So they're in the back of the women's quarters, but also it's pretty easy to get to these because of verandas. There's verandas there that make it easy to get there. Uh, this is similar with like the Kasi people with Kerala in West India, right? You have like a separate room for the woman where the men can come and visit. And it, it's easy for the men to come and visit there. Whereas a more full-on patriarchal society is going to sequester the women in the back, right? Does that mean, is it because she's in the provinces and her father is a governor you know, proto-feudal lord, that she is sequestered in the back and it's hard to get to her room. That's, an, I, I don't know, you know, just speculating. Uh, in in Heian, right, in the capital, it's much easier to access the veranda. Uh, Ivan Morris's The World of the Shining Prince, you know, for all that he's, so the the longest chapter in the book by far is called The Women of Heian and Their Relations with Men. And it's him in his very squeamish kind of prudish. He's a bit, pr- a bit of a prude, uh, interestingly, because his, all the more interestingly, because his mother, um, Edita Morris, was this famous libertine who kept a, a lover in addition to her husband. And the three of them would go on trips together and so on. And yeah, but young Ivan was a, a posh English boarding school boy and he yeah he's got some interesting stuff I mean he's he's he writes most of his books like for his mother and I think his you can hear him sort of talking to his mother about like this is he's happy he's like sort of saying like yeah this is it's it's laying out a blueprint for sort of liberated sexual mores for a liberal uh social democratic um right wing you know like i really want to think about edita morris is swedish like olaf palma um on ghost stories for the end of the world recently we've had my friend marcus on there uh talking about the assassination of olaf palma in some ways he would be the same sort of gen like cast of uh you know, liberal ruling class. Um, Edita Morris was some kind of do-gooder. You know, I, I'll have more to say about her. I'm real interested in her. She did a lot of things, and she was in and out of the lives of a lot of more revolutionary people, right? Um, it's really fascinating. So, but but she had a very kind of polygamous uh, relationship. She had a very kind of liberated um 
relationship with her husband, uh, Ira Morris, who was a maybe a more sincere socialist than than she was. I don't I don't know. You know it's hard to say. Uh, but anyway, Ivan is is writing this chapter for her. It's the longest chapter in the book, and he really pulls out all the stops. Um, he's got this weird prudish undercurrent about it too, you know. And it, I don't know what's the undercurrent and what's the overcurrent actually. Uh, he himself was, you know, like from their diaries and stuff. Like it's clear that uh, Edita would be hanging around his flat in Columbia, you know, by New York um, in the Upper West Side. And he would be, you know, having a morning after breakfast with his mother and his um, paramour of the moment. You know, he had a lot of different women coming in and out of there. Um, the Italian, uh, you know, Genovese uh, heiress that he was about to marry and then got assassinated at the end of his life. Uh, that's a whole interesting story that I'm, I'm going to be able to go deeper into actually later. Uh, she was a, a student of his at Columbia. So I think it seems like fucking his students was a thing he was doing. Um, not so cool, but, uh, you know, probably was pretty common at that time, sadly. Uh, but so, yeah, I don't know what's going on, but he's, he's got a, a lot of quotations that he's translated to English from like Say Shonagon's Pillow Book, from the Gossamer Diary, from a lot of the, you know, all the supporting literature that you would look into to, to learn more about this. So it's really cool. Here's, here's a scene uh, depicting a, a sort of typical vignette of a morning after, you know. A lady is lying in bed having recently bidden her lover farewell. This is from Seishonagon's Pillow Book. She looks as if she is asleep under the light mauve costume that she is using as her bedclothes. Um, so that would be common. You you sleep in like a, a kind of thick, um, f- it's like a, what do you call those? Snuggies or whatever? There's like a fucking, for sedentary uh, settlers on their couches, there's like whole body blankets that have like sleeves right now. I don't know. I've been away from uh, the land of the couch potato for a while. Um, but they had like that, right, basically. Um, not coincidentally, because they spent a lot of time around the house. Um, and always dealing with boredom, I think. <laughs> so she wears an unlined orange robe and a dark crimson skirt of stiff silk whose cords hang loosely by her side, suggesting they have been left untied. Her thick tresses tumble over each other in cascades, and one can imagine how long her hair must be when it falls freely down her back. Um, The ideal Heian beauty would have hair down past her longer than she is tall, right? So if she stands up, it should touch the, the floor. Meanwhile, another gentleman is making his way home in the misty dawn from some nocturnal visit. He is wearing loose violet trousers, an orange hunting costume so lightly colored that one can hardly tell whether it has been dyed or not, a white robe of stiff silk and a glossy robe of beaten silk. His clothes, which have been thoroughly moistened by the dew, hang loosely about him. From the dishevelment of his side locks, one can tell how negligently he must have tucked his hair into his black lacquered headdress when he got up. So the men actually have quite long hair, too, that they tuck into these uh, standing tall black caps when they're out and about. He wants to return and write his next morning letter before the dew on his morning glories has had time to vanish. The road seems endless, and to divert himself, he hums 
the sprouts in the flax fields, which is a common poem, uh, famous poem. As he walks along, he passes a house with an open lattice. And this is the house of the lady that was discussed just now, right? She's painting this picture for us. He is on his way to report for official duty, but he cannot help stopping to raise the blind slightly and peep into the room. So you could just do this, right? This is my point. It amuses him to think that some other man has probably been spending the night here and has recently got up and left, just as he himself has done, right? So there's no fear about this either. And as you'll see, it's, uh, there's very little sort of anxiety about protecting the chastity of women, right? Um, although it is in the laws, it is on the law books that a man can still kill his wife if he finds her in uh, flagrante delicto and he wants to. So that's on the books, actually. Um, so looking around the room, though, he notices near the lady's pillow an open fan with a magnolia frame and purple paper. Oh, just on and on about the colors and the fashions, right? The accessories. And at the foot of her curtain of state, he sees some narrow strips of white michinoku paper. It's very thick paper that would be used for a fancy letter. And also some other paper made of a faded color, which appears to be either orange-red or maple. The lady senses that someone is watching her, and looking up from under her bedclothes, she sees the gentleman leaning against the wall by the threshold, with a smile on his face. She can tell at once that he is not the sort of man with whom she needs to feel the slightest reserve. All the same, she does not want to enter into any familiar relations with him, and she is annoyed that he should have seen her asleep. Well, well, madam, says the man, leaning forward so that the upper part of his body comes behind her curtains. What a long nap you're having after your morning adieu. You really are a slugabed. You call me that, sir, only, she replies, only because you're annoyed at having to get up so early. Their conversation may be banal, yet I find there is something rather charming about the scene. Now the gentleman leans forward more, and, using his own fan, tries to get a hold of the fan by the lady's pillow. She fears that he is coming too close, and, her heart pounding, she moves farther back in her curtain enclosure. The gentleman picks up the magnolia fan and, as he examines it, says in a slightly bitter tone, How cold you are being! But now it is growing light, there is a sound of people's voices, and it looks as if the sun will soon be up. Only a short while ago this same man was hurrying back, so that he might write his next morning letter before the mists had time to clear. Alas, how easily his intentions have been forgotten. While all this is afoot, the lady's original lover has been busy with his own next morning letter, and now, before anyone expected it, the messenger arrives at the lady's house. The letter is attached to a spray of clover, which is still damp with dew, and the paper gives off a delightful aroma of incense. Because of the new visitor, however, the lady's attendants cannot deliver it to her. Finally, it becomes unseemly for the gentleman to stay any longer. As he goes, he is amused to think that a similar scene may well be taking place in the house he left earlier that morning. So notice the glossy frame-up job that traditional Japanese culture got in the post-war, you know, at the hands of Anglo-American Japanology. And of course, Ivan Morris writing in 1964 here is actually neither Anglo nor American, we might say. I, want, I don't know what his citizenship situation would have been exactly, but he served in the American naval intelligence. But based on his having gone to British boarding school, 
He spent his entire life playing the impeccable English gentleman, even though he grew up in France uh, with a Swedish mother and a New York Jewish father. So little identity troubles there, but regardless, you know, look at this frame up, look at this glossy puff piece that is American Japanology. Uh, and that was necessary if you think about the Gerald Horn angle, you know? Think about uh, facing the rising sun. Think about race war. The way that Japan was perceived as a colored country up until that point, really, and, and not much higher at all than black people, African people, than indigenous people, right? And you know that any indigenous culture at all has just as many refined and elegant elements of aesthetic pleasure, the harmony with the seasons, you know, high astronomy, uh, scientific understanding of the world, uh, you know, beautiful spiritual traditions, all of that too. But, you know, anything that, you know, the, this kind of frame-up that they did for Japan, you could do that for any number of indigenous and non-Western societies, any African society has this. You could have done that, right? We can do that. We should do that. That should be a big part of what this podcast fucking is, you know. But, uh, you know, it was done for Japan and for very particular reasons uh, by people like Ivan Morris, you know. For their own reasons, they were stuck in, you know, he was stuck in a very unenviable situation in all kinds of ways, too. I wish him a happy rebirth on a lotus blossom. A, B, C, it's easy, it's like counting up to three. Sing a simple melody, and baby, that's how easy love can be. A, B, C, it's easy, it's like counting up to three. Sing a simple melody, and baby, that's how easy love can be. It's such a groomer song, my God. What else could you possibly mean by talking about teachers going to show you how to get an A? Come on. This is uh, normalizing a power imbalance, which is the real meaning of that term, which is a very useful term, uh, not just in sex and gender, but all over unequal relations of production, which we must analyze with dialectical materialism. It's not in that spirit that I quoted. It would be more about, like, how can we uh, make kinship work smoothly, right? <laughs> I think that's what we're trying to think about here. Uh, not that what we see in the tale of Genji is at all ideal uh, in most respects, but, you know, maybe they get some things right that most of us get wrong today. And, and you can see, you can compare it as well to... Chushingura, which we covered in an earlier episode, right? There you have the woman moving from her father's house to the husband's house. She, in return, the father-in-law gets the samurai honor. That samurai honor is lost through the disgrace of being a wife guy, right? Kampei, the main character there. He was actually riding his wife uh, when he was supposed to be on the job and on the spot, and he wasn't there to stop his master from pulling out his sword and uh, disgracing himself and thus having to commit ritual suicide. So the woman then has to be traded again to get money, right? The, and then the money 
goes and uh, buys back Kampe's place in the vendetta, isn't it? So you can see there the, the body of the woman is moving around like liquid currency. Well, what's moving around here in the tale of Genji is actually the men. The women are the ones who are stable, immobile, to the point of extreme boredom, perhaps. Uh, we can see that in like the diary of Izum, Izumi Shikibu is another great, great one. And, and there's lots of quotes from that in Ivan Morris, right? So again, that's something you can look through and have fun uh, with all those good English translations of those primary sources, right? Uh, the argument itself is very much a kind of, kind of liberated, kind of prudish. He can't decide. Uh, denizen of 1964, uh, upper class Europe. That's fascinating. I'll have a lot more to say about him. He's my, one of my perennial uh, mm, fascinations or something, right? So uh, the chief equerry is talking about the really fascinating girl, right? And this is somebody from the provincial governor class, it seems clear. Uh, her father is a miserable, fat old man. Her brother's face is none too prepossessing either. And then there's a great joke that's turned on this, because when he gets to the end of this little speech, he glanced at the aid of ceremonial, who seemed to take this as a reference to his own well-regarded sisters, since he kept his peace. So that would mean that he is the brother whose face is none too prepossessing as well <laughs> so it's like a little bit of a joke on his at his expense and uh, he just sort of decides to it, it's a great moment of characterization that he realizes that that was talking directed at him or they were thinking about him maybe they forgot uh, maybe he forgot that he was in the room and so on but then he's like but he decides not to draw attention to it right and just keep quiet, right? Oh, come now, Genji thought. It is rare enough to find anyone like that among the highborn. Over soft, layered white gowns, he had on only a dress cloak, unlaced at the neck. And lying there in the lamplight against a pillar, he looked so beautiful that one could have wished him a woman. So this is a famous moment of perhaps homoerotic desire. You could interpret it in that way. Right, we are we have so little clue of how again to put ourselves into this world and really feel it, understand what people mean by things. Right, uh, the, I think the original is like mitate baya to omo. You could think you could think that I want to. Uh, one could think that one wanted to. Mitate means to see someone as something, right? So, yeah, I mean, and, and so there you do have a, an expression of physical beauty, but it's, it's of a man, right? Uh, I mean, there's plenty of reference to, in this, right, to be women being beautiful or, or, or not, although that's hardly the most important thing for these men, right, in choosing what flower to land on as they bumble about. They talked on about one woman and another until the chief equerry remarked, Many do very well for an affair, but when you are choosing your own for good, you may not easily find what you want. It is probably just as difficult to find a truly capable man to uphold the realm in his majesty's service. So there's a, a great you know, gender division of labor there. What men do is uphold the realm in his majesty's service, right? 
But however demanding that sort of post may be, it takes more than one or two to govern, and that is why those above are assisted by those below, and why inferiors obey their superiors and defer willingly to them. Little statement of social order, right? And here, yeah, men are the ones who are out in the public sphere, right? So that would have some things in common with Greek gender relations, where, like, the polis is the, the sphere of men's activity, whereas the woman would be both the household, but also, you know, the oikeia, right? But also the natural world. So, you know, that would, I think for Engels, that would recall earlier Greek society, where a female-centered gens is the one carrying out... I mean, we know, again, from, like, Haudenosaunee in Turtle Island that the power of women in that, those societies to have their councils in the, in the longhouse stems from their material control of the production of grains and other food, right? Vegetables, all of the really essential food. And, and again, hunting is just kind of an extra, it's an afterthought, and they can do without it. So they can get rid of uh, men that seem dangerous at any time by means of trading them. You know, they have these systems of kind of uh, inheriting names, right? Uh, that's another similarity here. You, you have, this is one thing that Royal Tyler, this translator, is careful to keep going, right? The, the chief equerry is an example here. I mean, these are characters who don't have names in the later commentarial tradition that get associated with them. And so people in later periods who don't have their heads in this hay on court world can keep track of who's who, you know? Names like Genji, names like Tono Chujo. Tono Chujo is just, you know, the Fujiwara um, Chujo, a captain, right? And he's only a captain, like he's a captain now, right, in the second chapter, but he's not always a captain. And it, the ranks of people change throughout the, the whole tale of Genji. And you have to keep track of who is where on the hierarchy at any given moment. And so, and usually there's no, there's nothing like a personal name. People were not known by their personal names, even if they had them, right? They would be known by the name of their rank. And so this is a very kind of non-individualistic society. Uh, biographies are fluid and can be worn by maybe more than one person at certain times. This is something that they would have in common with Iroquois Confederacy, Mohawk, Haudenosaunee, uh, societies where the inheritance of names is a big thing. And this can compensate you. This can diffuse violent situations where someone has killed someone else. Because very often, uh, you know, so the women in charge of the community of the killed, the person who was killed, would, could send a revenge party to go and, and, kill the person who had committed the murder but much more often if they found that person at all they would kidnap them right mainly the purpose of war among these peoples is to get captives and captives serve almost like exchange students it's like a foreign exchange student who lives with you and uh, if they're at all tolerable as people, they will be adopted they'll take on the name often the name of the person they killed so, like, imagine that your, uh, your punishment is now to live as that person and take on their biography. Uh, you will be fed and clothed by their family. 
and in turn, you will take care of their elderly parents as they age. You have to <laughs> take on all their responsibility. I mean, it's it seems hard to imagine, perhaps, but actually, when you think about it, wow, how um, you know restorative justice. This is a w- great example of restorative justice. You don't kill a criminal. You don't punish a criminal with more bad things. You just force that criminal now to go and actually do all kinds of good things and and take on, change their identity, become someone else. You know, not don't be a criminal. Don't stigmatize. You know, this doesn't stigmatize people who have disrupted the social order. It just forces them to get back in and actually become an active agent in reconstituting the social order, making it better. Yeah. So here we're talking about the ideal, like, wife, you know, your one and only. Think of the one and only who is to run your little household. So this is, again, uh, found in many cultures that a woman is running a household on behalf of a man. So this uh, this aspect is not matriarchal for sure. Uh, The women are not in charge of the household uh, sort of for themselves in nearly the same way. So this is a society we could see again. Do you see it as in transition? You know, I think that's one way you could see it. So think of that one and only, and you realize how many important things there are to be done right. Even granting that having this, she is bound to lack that, and that you have to take the good with the bad. Very few can manage honorably. And so even if I do not recommend pursuing women forever in order to compare them all, I can hardly blame the man who is starting out to make his choice and who, to help himself make up his mind, looks around a little to find one he really likes, one who does not need him to tell her how to do every little thing. Things might not always work out perfectly, but the man who cannot bring himself to abandon a woman once he has made her his own deserves respect, and his constancy is also a credit to the woman with whom he keeps faith. It is true, though, that my own experience of couples has shown me no especially admirable or inspiring examples. And you, young lords, who pick and choose among the most exalted, right? He's of a much lower rank, of course, than Genji and Tono Chujo. That's, what, that's who he's talking to. What height of perfection does it take to gain your approval? And it, but he doesn't, he doesn't wait for them to answer, actually. He just keeps talking. He talks forever, this guy. Uh, as long as a girl has looks and youth enough, she avoids anything that might soil her name. Even when composing a letter, she takes her time to choose her words and writes in ink faint enough to leave you bemused and longing for something clearer. That's kind of wild. The the tone of ink expresses a lot in this culture. So, yeah, thin ink today also can be used to express mourning or sadness or, or you know, if, if you uh, can't write a New Year's greeting one year because you've had a death in the family, you'll write a, I mean, they just call it like a, a winter greeting instead, and they'll write it in like a light ink maybe. Or also invitations to a funeral will be in a light kind of gray ink. But here, I don't think anybody fully understands what does this actually mean, that there's, you know, the, the etiquette of handwriting here is clearly very... Uh, refined. There's many cases where you could spend a lot of time thinking about what a particular brush gesture would actually mean at that time. Right? Then when at last you get near enough to catch her faint voice, 
So hearing the voice of a woman, women would be very seldom seen, right? And even the verb meter, the verb to see, means at this time also to have sex. Because if you see a woman as a man, uh, it's already over, you know, <laughs> like, that's, it's happening, it's going down, right? Uh, because women would normally be hidden behind all kinds of curtains, curtain of state, as uh, Ivan Morris puts it, right? She speaks under her breath. She says next to nothing and proves to be an expert at keeping herself hidden away. Take this for sweetly feminine wiles, and passion will lure you into playing up to her, at which point she turns coy. This, I think, is the worst flaw a girl can have. Right? So there's a sense that you know, they might be hiding their actual lack of talent in some ways by not saying as much. Uh, they're, they're connoisseurs. Nothing if not connoisseurs, these these guys. Uh, He's still talking. (laughs) Still talking. A wife's main duty is to look after her husband. So it seems to me that one can do quite well without her being too sensitive, ever so delicate about the least thing, and all too fond of being amused. And, oh, so this is funny because he's about to say the exact same, the exact opposite thing. He's always contradicting himself, right? And he, he's kind of like Polonius in Hamlet in this way. I think he's supposed to be a kind of blowhard who doesn't really have anything to say. Um, but just hilarious and fascinating, too. Just great social satire, um, which you can identify with, but at the same time, this is such an alien uh, sex-gender system to us today, I think, uh, certainly to me, that... Uh, it's a little funny, too, right? And it's funny. It's definitely funny for Japanese people today as well when you really bring this out right, and put it on the table, what, what this is, right? Um, oh, so she should not be ever so sensitive or delicate, right? On the other hand, with a dutiful, frumpish housewife who keeps her side locks tucked behind her ears and does nothing but housework, I guess that would be like a serious look, uh, having your, your hair all down in front of your face would be maybe sexier or more aesthetic or something, you know, I guess. So um, the husband who leaves in the morning and comes home at night and who can hardly turn to strangers and chat about how so-and-so is getting on in public or private or about whatever, good or bad, may have happened to strike him and is, he's entitled to expect some understanding from the woman who shares his life. He finds instead, when he feels like discussing with her the things that have made him laugh or cry, or perhaps have inflamed him with righteous indignation, and are now demanding an outlet, that all he can do is avert his eyes, and and that when he then betrays private mirth or heaves a sad sigh, she just looks at him blankly and asks, what is it, dear? I mean, really, it's, it's more like she would be asking, like, what? And when this happens, how could he not wish himself elsewhere? Oh, woe is me. I just want to discuss my feelings. I come home after a busy day of aesthetic ruminations on flowers and Baroque social drama in the imperial court, and I just want someone to listen to my feelings. You know, this is an amazing patriarchy here. This is, I mean, and, and it's vicious patriarchy. This is a vicious patriarchy. Uh, but it's taking a, a real particular form here, isn't it? So that a woman who's actually super busy 
and businesslike and dealing with household matters is uh, annoying to this man in, in a way that we would today, I think, much more associate with women, right? I can remember reading some kind of stupid popular book about psychology and uh, yeah, they'll declare things like, oh yeah, men always, when they come home, they want to stare into the fire. They need fire-gazing time. This is something we have needed since we were cavemen. We had to look into the fire and, and manage our emotions in this way. By contrast, women prefer to discuss their feelings. They want to speak and discuss their, their day. And so it's a very common uh, spousal argument to get into when the man just wants quiet time and the woman immediately, when they see each other at the end of the day, wants to discuss all kinds of per private personal relationships. You know, so-and-so said this, so-and-so said that. You know, very gossipy kind of stuff, right? But men just don't understand that, just by nature, right? Not at all. What do we see here? You know, this is totally uh, the opposite, isn't it? Right? And then here he says something that... Um, Gee, it might connect. <laughs> very, it, there is a groomer element in, in the tale of Genji as well. Uh, Genji later on takes on maybe his main wife, maybe the, the most uh, prominent of his wives is Lady Murasaki, whom he sees through a gap in a fence, which is a common poetic trope as well in classical Heian Japan. Uh, a man sees a woman through a fence because again seeing a woman is something that you don't do very often uh, at least not a woman of, of high class and so on so he sees her she's young and he decides to kidnap her and raise her himself and then there's a particular um, very not not consensual uh, in any kind of complete way uh, moment when he finally does have sex with her and they become husband and wife. Um, very problematic, not what we would uh, encourage in the kingless generation, but uh, instructive for the conventions of patriarchy and for the particular nuances and the, the power dynamics of this class society, which we're very interested in analyzing, just as it is, right? So uh, here is the first intimation of that plot uh, that meme that we will see actually carried out by Genji. You could imagine maybe he got the idea here, right? Uh, because this big talker, um, the chief equerry, right? He, he's still talking. The horse master says, uh, it is probably not a bad idea to take a wholly childlike, tractable wife and form her yourself as well as you can. She may not have your full confidence, but you will know your training has made a difference. Certainly, as long as you actually have her with you, you can let her pretty ways persuade you to overlook her lapses, but you will still regret her incompetence if, when you are away, you send her word about something practical or amusing that needs doing. Something amusing that needs doing? And her response shows that she knows nothing about it and understands nothing either. These guys really care about their feelings and, and the goss and all this. Uh, sometimes a wife who is not especially sweet or friendly does very well when you actually need her. The chief equerry's far-ranging discussion on his topic yielded no conclusion but a deep sigh. So again, he's, he's being sort of um, satirized here as well, right? 
Um, in the end, I suppose, he went on, uh, one should settle on someone wholly dependable, quiet, and steady, as long as there is nothing especially wrong with her, and never mind rank or looks. If beyond that she has any wit or accomplishment, simply be grateful, and if she lacks anything in particular, by no means seek to have her acquire it. Provided she is distinctly trustworthy and forgiving, you know, she will gain a more superficially feminine appeal all on her own. Right, so this goes on for quite a while. Uh, they talk about divorce, right? A woman uh, may get in a fight, you know, and she goes off to hide herself away in a mountain village or on a deserted stretch of shore. So women in this society could inherit and own property. That's important. Uh, however, in practice, actually managing this property herself would have been very difficult, it seems. And that's the case with a lot of these in women who are seen to be some of the more interesting women, right? And remember, it's a woman writing this so that you have a woman looking through the eyes of these bumblebee man men sort of bumbling around and looking at all of these different women with their accomplishments and their unique experiences. Remember, Murasaki herself is from this provincial governor class. She has had a failed marriage herself. There's, there's definitely a lot of interest in women with sort of failed marriages. Maybe they're run off somewhere out into the country and bringing them back would be really sexy somehow. I can fix her. Maybe that's it. I can fix her. Uh, so she goes out, you know, imagine. Um, I can remember the gentlewoman used to read me stories like that when I was a boy, the chief equerry says of, of these, you know. She goes a, a mountain village, a deserted stretch of shore, leaving behind a shattering letter, a heart-rending poem, and a token to remember her by. I can remember my gentlewomen used to read me stories like that when I was a boy. So there's a literary like mimesis going on here where that's valorized in literature. And so it's something that he himself, I mean, he himself is a character in literature, but yeah. Um, those stories, they upset me a lot. In fact, they seem so tragic that I cried. But now that sort of thing strikes me as foolish and a bit of an act. Say our heroine has a legitimate grievance. She is still abandoning a husband who no doubt is very fond of her and running off as though she knew nothing of his feelings. And all she gains from upsetting him and testing his affection is lifelong regret. It is simply stupid. People keep telling her admiringly how right she was to act until she is swept away, and all at once there she is, a nun. When she makes up her mind to do it, she is perfectly calm and cannot imagine looking back on her old life. Oh dear, I'm so sorry, all those who knew her say when they come to call. I had no idea you felt so deeply about it, or I, I had no idea you meant it, maybe is what they really mean there. Uh, and, and it becomes difficult for women in the, these positions without strong male backing in broader society to actually administer property that they may own. So there's this image of the woman in a broken down house that's in a shambles. You can tell it was a once great mansion, but it's overgrown with weeds and so on. And there are several scenes where a gentleman visits a woman in this uh, sort of state, and it's considered extremely romantic and interesting, and so on. Um, as for, I mean, of course, like, this is definitely not a monogamous society. So monogamy for Engels is part of the transition to father right, 
because, of course, to make your own children that are only your heirs, of course, you have to monopolize the reproductive capacity of a certain woman. Um, But there's still very half-hearted efforts to do that here in this society, in the tale of Genji, you can see. Uh, Even for women, right, as we'll see. Uh, For men, of course, you know, uh, these men, but it's different from like a capitalist society today, you know, lots of, I don't know if Japanese marriage customs have ever been fully monogamous, uh, even on the surface, for men, uh, because they're recognized to be able to have concubines, basically, and um, mistresses, and so on, right, for an elite man, right? Uh, but that's this is a that's a fully patriarchal society which emerges in the 12th century, the 13th century, as we said, right? The Ie system is fully in place where you have male descent. And the women are the ones moving around. Here, it's still the men's moving, the men moving around, and so for them to be permitted uh, sexual adventures is a little bit of a different thing. Uh, but some of the same logic is used here to compared to something we might see in the Edo period. I can think of a, a scene in a kind of popular novel for kind of for women that uh, is about romances and stuff, and one woman sees that her man is uh, together with an old flame, and she's calculating in her head, how can I respond to this in such a way as to not lose him? And that's her greatest fear, much more than just, you know, he's cheating on me, uh, let me get my revenge on him. No, I, I need him regardless. I want him to stick around so how am I going to reconcile with this situation? Well, there's similar logic here, right? He starts talking, um, the chief equerry declares, it is silly for a wife to quarrel with a husband who is inclined to look elsewhere. Even if he is, she can always trust him to remain her husband as long as his first feeling for her still means anything to him. Whereas an outburst like that, like going and becoming a nun, right, running off to a mountain villa, may alienate him for good. She should always be tactful, hinting when she has cause to be angry with him that yes, she knows, and bringing the issue up gently when she might well quarrel with him instead, because that will only make him like her better. Most of the time, it is the wife's attitude that helps her husband's fancies to pass. It might seem endearingly sweet of her to be wholly permissive and to let him get away with everything, but that will only make her seem not to deserve his respect. It is too bad when, as they say, an unmoored boat just drifts away. Do you not agree? Uh, That's a quotation from uh, Bai Juyi poem, Um, a Chinese poet who had a tremendous influence on Japan in this time. There's tons and tons of Bai Juyi Uh, poetry quoted here in the tale of Genji. Um, So the secretary captain nodded. It is bound to be particularly difficult when one of a couple suspects the other, sometimes otherwise loved and cherished, of infidelity. But although the injured party, being blameless, may well then be quite prepared to overlook the matter, things may not go so easily. At any rate, the best remedy when something comes between a couple is surely patience. This remark, he felt, applied particularly well to his own sister. So here, you know, this, this is uh, Tono Chujo, the secretary captain. 
we need to keep track of that, right? As I said, um, he has this name that the tradition has given him, but that does not appear in the, the main text, at least not more than once or twice, right? So Tono Chujo is the brother of Aoi no Ue, who is the main wife of Genji. So Genji and Tono Chujo are in a position in the family tree where they might have had a, a conflict, right? The uncle is the uh, sort of the rival of the father, uh, especially in this time of transition from matrilineal relations to patrilineal relations, right? And we still have very clearly matrilocal marriage because the place where the anchor of the spatial anchor of the couple is the woman's house and her family, right? And so the men of that household who, you know, among the Kasi, uh, in Kerala, in Indonesia, among the Mosua people in Sichuan and Yunnan in China, right, who have practiced matriliny, yeah, or did at some sometimes in history, yeah. Uh, the uncle is the one who will be raising the children of his sister, usually, and the father doesn't live with them, right? So, and, and in some ways, these men are still used to that, or, or is that their way of protecting patriarchal power? You know, it can really help to draw these diagrams, uh, first of all, just to get the family trees straight, but also it really helps to pay attention to patriarchy, patrilineage versus matrilineage, and draw those, those little molecule diagrams, you know, the way that you talk about uh, the two hydrogen atoms and the oxygen atom, they share an electron that goes between them and bonds them together. You know, that's the way that traditional patriarchy sort of shares. It's all about when one man and another man love each other very much and they want to share a factory or some land or something. Uh, well, then they trade women between each other. The older man gives his daughter to the younger man in marriage and then they can live together happily ever after. Well, here you have it, the opposite situation in a certain way, and these men are they're moving around, or they're supposed to be moving around. Remember, Genji and Tono Chujo both are here in the palace on this rainy night. Uh, because the emperor is under a ritual taboo of like Chinese geomancy, that it's unlucky to move in a certain direction at that time, uh, but they wouldn't have had to stay there. They're, they're hanging out there because they want to and they don't want to go home. It's like hanging out at the, at the bar, hanging out at the pub long after work is done and you just don't want to go home because you're an unhappy boomer man who uh, <laughs> you're running from your marriage and so on, right? Well, this is the same thing, but um, they're supposed to be actually living with their wife's family, right? Who would be you know, wanting to smother, wanting to shower them with gifts and so on, as we saw, but also maybe smother them. So there's, there's a conflict there. There's actually a contradiction there that could emerge between Genji and Tono Chujo, in fact. So um, Tono Chujo thinks this remark applied particularly well to his own sister, who's being very patient, I think, with Genji at his wandering around. Uh, and he was therefore both annoyed and disappointed that Genji was dozing and had nothing to add. 
So much like the earlier moment, uh, we get this great little characterization to see how the different characters respond to each speech. And in Genji's case, his response is nothing, right? which is usually the case here. Having appointed himself the arbiter in these matters, the chief equerry continued his exposition of them while the secretary captain, who was eager to hear him out, chimed in earnestly. Think of all this in terms of the arts, the chief equerry intoned. Take, for example, the joiner who makes what he pleases from wood. He may turn out briefly amusing things according to no set pattern and for only passing minor uses, strikingly ingenious pieces that he keeps nicely attuned to fashion so that they pleasingly catch the eye, and yet one still distinguishes him easily from the true master, who works with success in recognized forms, producing furnishings prized for being exactly right. So there's a lot in a recent book by Brian Steininger about, um, what is it called? Maybe like Chinese culture in the tale of Genji? Um, or just, yeah, court culture. But he has like a whole chapter, I think, on artistic achievement. And it's kind of about how uh, the gentleman was supposed to be sort of effortlessly good at different kinds of art. And what does art sort of mean to them, right? Is it, it's not exactly personal expression of what's in your heart or anything. And, and here, uh, what's being said is like, yeah, you know, people who do a, a really interesting, like, creative piece is cool, but but can you do the classics? Can you do, you know, the kind of s standard uh, furniture or whatever that everyone expects, the things that are supposed to be the thing that a really good carpenter makes, right, as opposed to something creative, right? Uh, or take another example. By the time a skilled artist in the office of painting is deemed qualified to design a whole work, it is not easy to tell at a glance whether he is better or worse than another. Startling renderings of what no eye can see, things like Mount Horai, so that would be like Mount Punglai. This is a Buddhist, like, part of Buddhist cosmology, mythological mountain. Raging leviathans amid stormy seas, the fierce beasts of China, or the faces of invisible demons. They do indeed amaze the viewer because they are convincing even though they resemble nothing real. Yet quite commonplace mountains and streams, the everyday shapes of houses, all looking just as one knows them to be, and rendered as peaceful, welcoming forms mingling in harmony with gently sloping hills, thickly wooded, folded range upon wild range, and in the foreground a fenced garden, with such subjects as these, and there are many, the greater artist succeeds brilliantly in conception and technique, while the lesser one fails. So I suppose he's saying something similar there, where like, it's a less bold conception, right? If you're thinking of new ideas, and, uh, or at least you're, you're dealing with shocking subject matter, kind of loud stuff, well, it's easy to pull that off in a way, but if, if you're painting something that is maybe every day, it's harder to do that in a striking, engaging, memorable way, I think. And he talks about handwriting, too. I, I'm interested in this. Are you interested? Yeah, and it's in the same way, handwriting without depth may display a lengthened stroke here and there and generally claim one's attention until at first glance it appears impressively skilled. But although truly fine writing may lack superficial appeal, a second look 
at the two together will show how much closer it is to what writing should be. Okay, so the really good example might put you off at first. Uh, is that because it's more challenging? Here it sounds like he's saying something different, though, right? Uh, this is a hard, is a challenging subject, and so therefore, right? With the painting, it was like, oh, can you do a plain thing really well? And then that means you're good. I don't know. This guy is, he's, he's a blowhard, I think. That is the way it is in every field of endeavor, however minor, so you see, I have no faith in the obvious show of affection that a woman may sometimes put on. And I shall tell you how I learned this, though I am afraid the story is a little risque. He moved closer to Genji, who woke up. Genji was sleeping the whole fucking time. <laughs> While the secretary captain sat reverently facing him, chin in hand. So Tono Chujo has been listening. All right. The chief equerry might have been a preacher preparing to reveal the truth of existence, which was certainly amusing, but by now, these young men were eager to share the most intimate moments of their lives. So, some real good old, uh, good old bro love here, homosociality. So he says, Long ago, when I was still very young, there was someone who meant a great deal to me. She was no great beauty, as I told you, and I, being young and inclined to explore had no intention of staying with her forever, because although she was home to me, I felt I could do better, and so now and again I amused myself elsewhere. This drove her to a pitch of jealousy that I did not like at all, and I only wished she would stop and be more patient, but instead her violent suspicions became such a nuisance that I often found myself wondering why she was so intent on keeping me, since I was really no great prize. I felt sorry for her, though, and I began to mend my ways after all and so on. Uh, he's, he kind of takes her for granted, basically, is what it seems like. Right? Um, they, get, they finally get into uh, a big fight at the end, and this is the fight. Now I was really angry, and I began saying awful things that she could hardly accept. Instead, she pulled one of my fingers to her and bit it, at which I flew into a rage. I can't go out in society wounded like this, I roared. My office... My rank, of which you seem to think so little. Just how, my fine lady, do you expect me now to hold my head up at all? As far as I can see, all that is left for me is to leave the world. And so on. Well, so now it sounds like he's the one who's threatening to become a monk and so, right, leave the world. Uh, it's, it's a kind of suicide, right? It's a social suicide. Characters in this aristocratic world often express a maybe perfunctory wish, maybe not, that, that they could leave the world and become a monk or a nun. But you can see how here it's, it's treated as something that maybe people do for rash reasons. So the fight continues, the relationship continues to disintegrate. It was not until one miserably sleety night after the rehearsal for the special Kamo festival, so everyone has to go to that, as we were all leaving the palace that I realized I had no other home to go to than hers. So these these bees, little bumblebees have to find some flower to, to land on, after all. Uh, and uh, so he decided to go to her house, right? He, off I went, uh, by way of just looking in on her to sound out her feelings, brushing away the snow and biting my nails with embarrassment. Apparently this is something you would do. Uh, but still assuming that on a night like this, she would welcome me after all. So he goes there. Uh, and 
her ladies, uh, I saw only her usual women who answered that at dark she had moved to her parents' house. She had just moved out, right? So that's like a final expression of divorce. Especially for this, this maybe he was keeping her in a certain room, right? And that's one of the other like perverted things that Genji does. You know, Genji's like a wild uh, sexual uh, explorer, sort of, and he keeps a different, he makes a great big palace and he puts a different woman in each corner of it and gives uh, a different, each woman a different garden that reflects her kind of personality and so on. Uh, so what he was doing is not uh, considered normal, but it considered very elegant and, and cool, right? And so that's his house, right? This is patri patrilocal uh, arrangement, which is kind of perverted, right? Very modern style. Well, this here would also similar be, similarly be that, I think. Maybe her parents don't have a house in the city, right? She's not from such a great high background, and that's why she's staying somewhere that is uh, probably he's, you know, paying the rent, as it were. Uh, but she left that place right before he arrived, I guess. Uh, still, what she had left for me to wear was even more beautifully made than before, and its colors were even more pleasing. Even after I stormed out of the house, she had still been looking out for my every need. She had all these great clothes ready for him to wear whenever he, if, if he ever did show up again. Right, so... Yeah, tragic stuff. So, uh, and he puts, he, they fight more. He put on another show of headstrong independence. And she was so hurt that she died. That taught me that these things are no joke. So, yeah, I think this is supposed to be really tragic. It might make you kind of giggle. <laughs> uh, okay, she died, really? But and people die a lot in this story, too, uh, from embarrassment, from shame. This is very common, and ethnographic accounts of all different other societies will tell you this is a fairly common thing, right? And I think, you know, some of the more uh, exploitative trans-egalitarian societies that, that do exist, uh, the ethnographers, there are stories that a shaman can look at a person and say, you broke the rules, you will die now, you must die and they really fall down dead because they just believe so much in the power of the shaman. Um, you check that up, you know, because these are always colonial ethnographers and so on. But um, that's the kind of power that our ruling class today definitely hungers to have. And that's what they're trying to achieve with the Internet. That's what they want your phone. They, the, the holy grail is for them to have your phone has a way to kill you. Or you, they have nanorobots in your blood that will do so, et cetera. Ultimate way to shorten the kill chain, as in, in uh, U.S. Army parlance, right? Um, but he now he idealizes this woman who is gone. I remembered her as the model of a dependable wife. It was well worth discussing anything with her, whether a passing fancy or something important. So you can see these women are not at all just housewives, right? And, and they're not only just running households very competently, they would actually provide lots of advice on how to run the realm and so on. There's a convention at this time that women can only write the phonetic script and they don't know the Chinese characters, the Chinese full, uh, you know, Sinosphere Han script. 
that is the language of government and philosophy and politics. But uh, time and again, we find they actually do. They actually do. There's all kinds of, all these texts by women uh, mention almost having to pretend, sometimes they have to pretend that they don't understand, right? Which may be a common experience for women even today. Uh, so the, the chief equerry, anyway, the chief equerry went on. I was visiting at the same time a very gifted woman, so-and-so. So there's another woman. Um, she was inclined to be vain and flirtatious, and so, to my mind, not to be trusted. After that, I visited her less often, and meanwhile, I discovered that secretly she had another lover. One beautifully moonlit night. So he basically, like, gets out of a taxi uh, at the same time as this guy, kind of, to, so to speak. And he goes and watches him go right just on the way to where she lived. You could see the lake through a break in the garden wall, and it seemed a shame to go straight past a house favored even by the moon. So I got out as well. He must have arranged it all with her beforehand, because he was excited when he sat down on the veranda, I suppose it was, of the gallery near the gate. For some time he watched the moon. So then they, they start playing... Uh, instruments together right she gets out a certain instrument and his his impression is oh the two of them were not at all bad he doesn't like this is so alien compared to later japanese culture for example um you know ihara saikaku of the like, 1690s maybe beginning uh right early edo period writer genroku fiction he's the author of the life of an amorous man he also has uh, the life of uh, life of an amorous woman, five women who loved love. Uh, you know, there's all kinds of exuberant um, discussion of the the fun of sexual adventures, but there there are consequences for the women. You know, in that society, pretty much, I, I think most of the women end up dead by the end of their stories. It's uh, there's nothing like the unproblematic, just happy ending of the life of an amorous man. Right, but here he is. He's he's seeing uh, his one of his girlfriends anyway, uh, cheating on him, or you know, seeing somebody else without his uh, without telling him about it. Which again is not a huge deal, but you can just see how little of a deal it is because his his reaction is just to hang around and be like, oh, what kind of music are they going to play? Oh, that's cool. Uh, but then, like, there's a poetic exchange between them, and something about this. I'm not sure. I quite understand what it is about the the poetry and and maybe it has something to do with the way that she tuned her koto her her musical instrument to the banshiki mode to a different tuning and played away uh in the best modern style but i was thoroughly put off she didn't she little knew how distasteful a show she was putting on so it would be like if you were eavesdropping, spying on your uh, lover who is meeting someone else. And uh, at first you, you thought it was pretty cool, but then they put on, you know, they started playing some music that you really don't like. And then you're like, oh, God, this is terrible. Fuck these. Fuck her. Right. And that's why he's angry. <laughs> that's why he's right. I may. And literally, uh, anything silly or loose about a woman can put you off. And, and that is why I made that night my excuse to end it. <laughs> it's tasteless music. Come on. If you're going to cheat on me, at least play the, play the good stuff. Play the real classics. He has one more story. 
about uh, kind of a kind of a nerdy woman, perhaps someone who who uses a lot of Chinese characters in her letters and so on. Uh, seems to know the Sinosphere discourse, right? And doesn't hide it in quite the way that he wishes that she would, right? So this infantilization of women is is I mean, it's definitely here. We're talking about, you know, this is one of the major expressions in world literature of this kind of male desire to raise the perfect woman to be the perfect um, helpmeet in this very servile way. Uh, but nevertheless, there's still quite a lot of matriarchal power in this world. And maybe that's that's part of what is driving these men to such heights of patriarchal connivance and uh, class uh, class action, you know, class organization. They are organizing as a class, and that's one way that you can see this rainy night critique of ranks. So this story actually is from To no Chujo. You have a bit of a transition. Uh, Genji smiled wryly in seeming agreement. From what you say, you made a fine spectacle of yourself both times, he remarked. They all laughed. And then Tono Chujo starts in, I will tell you a fool's tale. So it's unclear who the fool is here. Commentators disagree, uh, whether it's Tono Chujo or the woman. Uh, this, the, a woman who has no parents, which made her life difficult. Uh, and it was quite endearing the way she uh, showed me now and again that for her I was indeed the one. And, uh, and he mentions offhandedly, oh, and you see the child she had as well. Um, which it seems it's it's his child um, that will become a, a character later. Uh, this is the character known as Tamakazura, who is another young female character that Genji will sort of pluck from obscurity in the provinces, uh, being taken care of by handmaidens out there, and raise her to be a great uh, beauty and the perfect woman and so on. Right, so like this engineering of women, right, and the yeah the traffic in women, of course, as the famous essay goes, uh, it's a traffic in women, but it also the raising and cultivation of them is this extreme pastime here. I mean, in in this sense, it is the ultimate grooming culture, right? Um, although all patriarchy is, you know, you you have old artificial handicap. You are, what is that really? You know, what is actually grooming? It's probably good to actually understand that. And from a dialectical materialist class critique perspective, we can actually do something with a concept like that. What you're doing is you're handicapping the person, you're stunting their normal perception of exploitation so that they don't feel exploited when in fact they are. And that is, that's used in all kinds of parts of society. But yeah, we definitely see it here. So yeah, Genji will later raise Tamakazura, who is this this child of actually Tono Chujo's, and this woman, who he too, uh, I guess she vanishes without a trace at the end of his his thing. Um, him just kind of, you know, going back and forth, maybe getting close to her, uh, pulling away, and so on, right? But here again, the secretary captain. Right, I was still a student at the academy when I knew a brilliant woman, like the one the chief equerry wanted. You can talk over public affairs with her. Her grasp of how to live life was penetrating. And on any topic, her daunting learning simply left nothing further to add. 
So I was actually wrong a second ago. Uh, Tamakazura's mother was not the scholarly woman. This is the scholarly woman here, right? Uh, but so here you see the same thing, right? Actually, these women are quite capable of, of a lot of things. Uh, you know, you can, you can add to this the, the trans-historical view of reception of the tale of Genji in especially modern, the modern transition, it became very important to sort of rate the different time periods in Japanese history. When was the imperial institution at the forefront? And I think really when was patriarchal power at the forefront? Uh, Yoda Tomiko, Tomiko Yoda, uh, at, who's at Harvard now, I think, but her book on uh, gender and national literature, I think is her book on the tale of Genji through the lens of the Meiji period and the, the transition to modernity and so on, which is, has to do this patriarchal thing of like, uh, she talks about how there's an image of the Heian period as the time when incubation, you know, the gestation of, of true Japanese culture was happening uh, with the women and so on, right? So even the elevation of the tale of Genji in this can canonical way is sort of backhanded, uh, in my, you know, in, in the medieval period, mostly, you know, there's all kinds of no plays about the tale of Genji, but most of them, you know, there's one starring Murasaki Shikibu, but what it is, is that she has to be freed from the sin of writing such a terrible book as the tale of Genji. What could that possibly mean? Well, that's because there's this ideology in Japanese Buddhism of like Kyogen Kigo, of like, language that is too sophisticated, language that's just all tricky and just, just gets you lost in all kinds of delusion. So the tale of Genji was seen as the epitome of that, as just leading you away from salvation with all these aesthetic concerns and, and attachments and so on, right? It was considered very bad literature. The worst, right? Um... So, and then later on, it gets rehabilitated, of course. It mostly gets rehabilitated in the post-war. You know, Ivan Morris, again, is again and again calling it the world's first psychological novel, and he's comparing it to Proust, which was his father's favorite novel. Um, just the most Oedipal guy that ever lived, I gotta tell you. Uh, <laughs> Proust, yeah, so... Um, and that is about elevating Japan to this level of, you know, NATO equivalent uh, allied country for America during the Cold War. Right. So every time period has a different evaluation of like. Right. And they hated the, the imperial restoration government of the early, you know, modern period, the, the Meiji period, hated the. Fujiwara marriage politics that were putting these women, the wives go into the imperial family and they take control of the these child emperors. You know, they hate that, of course. So, and that that's what paves the way for the warlords to take over, right? So warlord power, warrior class power as well is another other to the imperial institution. It's another rival. So modern ideology in general is not going to like that either, right? But the, the, the courtiers as well, right? And especially these aesthete courtiers. Not always rated so highly. You know, it's really in the post-war where we want, you know, 
sophisticated but but peaceful always peaceful 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 you know this is why kawabata yasunari the very effete aestheticist uh, novelist wins the nobel prize and not mishima yukio the muscle-bound bodybuilder uh, you know they're both right wing in a, in a liberal way and a conservative way respectively you can see why you can see oh this is one we chose one kind of bourgeois literature to represent Japan on the world stage and definitely not another one uh, because it wasn't time for that. So here's the scholarly woman, actually. Tono Chujo is actually egging on the aid of ceremonial. So I think Shikibu no Jo, maybe? Uh, the aid of ceremonial is the one telling the story. Uh, it all started when I was visiting a certain scholar's home to pursue my studies. Having gathered that he had several daughters, I seized a chance to make this one's acquaintance, which he had no sooner discovered than in he came, bearing wine cups and declaiming insinuatingly, Hark while I sing of two roads in life. Uh, that's, a, that's a song about marriage. It suggests marriage. Ah, that's actually from uh, Bo Juyi, right, as well. So the, the Chinese, it's, it's Chinese poetry, appropriately enough. So I had no such wish, did the aid of ceremonial, but I still managed somehow to go on seeing her in order not to offend him, i.e. her father. So there you have some patriarchy happening, isn't it? You know, two men want to, well, one, this, here you have an unrequited crush, maybe, by the scholar man. Uh, scholars are viewed with a, a mix of respect and disdain by these courtiers, you know. Genji has a whole lot of respect for them, and he actually puts his son in uh, the, the academy, uh, which he's miserable, and everyone around him knows, like, oh, this isn't something you really need to do in order to exercise political power. For someone of his exalted rank, it's just a total waste of time. You know, the the academy is just for everything that you could say about it today. You know, it's a place that we put people who are too dangerous otherwise. Uh, we pay them off and give them a little stipend, give them tenure, and maybe let them fuck their students, depending on how the um, culture of the time is, right? Uh, that was a big part of the settlement, you know? I mean, well, old monasteries too, right? So, but this this lady has some serious power, however, right? She was very good to me, even while we lay awake at night, she would pursue my edification or instruct me in matters beneficial to a man in government service, and no note from her was ever marred by a single one of those Kana letters. That's the syllabary that women are supposed to always be writing in, and supposedly it was desirable. Well, not for the aid of ceremonial here. We have to take this seriously. He respects a, a learned woman in the classical discourse of their civilization, right? Um, her, her letters are couched in language of exemplary formality. So what with all this, I could not have left her because it was she who taught me how to piece together broken-backed Chinese poems. That's a particular type of Chinese poem, uh, right? So he's all kinds of challenging, challenging Chinese poems, right? She taught me how to, how to deal with them. And for that, I remain eternally grateful as to making her my dear wife, however, a dunce like me could only have been embarrassed to have her witness his bumbling efforts. So that's interesting, too. For her to be his main wife, it would be embarrassing because she's, she's smarter than him. She's more accomplished than him at, at this, 
at a scholarly pursuit. Okay, so maybe, uh, isn't that interesting, right? Very similar things that we could see today. If a woman makes more money than a man, that will often be a deal breaker in the weirdest way. But I'm sure any, any women listening will know exactly what I'm talking about. That can be a huge deal breaker for, for so many people. If, if you're invested in a particular kind of masculinity, right, where you're the breadwinner. I mean, this is so post-war. This is so uh, picket fence bullshit, right? And this is very contradictory here, too, because the whole thing is predicated on these daughters being raised to be brilliant paragons of cultural accomplishment. So they should be delighted at this. You know, is this is this again creeping patriarchy here uh, on this one plane? There's uh, it, he doesn't dislike her for being smart. You know, I, th- I feel like I've heard very wrong readings of exactly this passage from maybe somebody in grad school or something. Oh, no, it's Royal Tyler's note here, note 40. Uh, This avoidance of Kana, her letters are entirely in Chinese characters, creates a strangely formal masculine effect. He doesn't suggest that here. He says exemplary formality. He says, with all this, I could not have left her. Uh, There's nothing but positive language here. And it's the only problem is making her my main wife, right? That's why. Uh, it would have been embarrassing. Your lordships undoubtedly need that sort of conjugal tutelage even less than I did. And this is something Brian Steiniger says. It was a convention of manners at this time to just assume anyone with a higher rank than you obviously is just effortlessly good at everything they do. There's another scene of a painting contest or something. And um, they admit that, like, Tono Chujo, I think... uh, pays a professional painter to paint his painting and he puts it in the contest as if like I painted it which was you know that's revealing the real convention that probably these people would have done uh but then Genji you know uh in this novel he's so effortlessly good that his painting is just way better than even the professionally produced one that Tono Chujo puts in there And that's a conceit, but this is a society that believed very, very strongly in the just absolute virtue of rank. Although, of course, that's full of contradictions. Aren't we talking all about social mobility in this rainy night critique of ranks conversation the whole time? So the aid of ceremonial doesn't rank high enough to sort of get to pretend like, oh, of course, I'm just, you know, good at everything coming right out of the womb. But then he has to adjust that when speaking, realizing, oh, I'm talking to Genji and Tono Chujo, uh, who I have to, basically, everyone does have to pretend that they can do everything perfectly coming just out of the womb. Although he, well, here's a pro forma disavowal at the end here. All this was foolish of me, I agree, and I should have foregone my involvement with her, but sometimes destiny just draws you on. I suppose the men are really the foolish ones. So some real class struggle on the gender plane all the way through here. And no less here in the conclusion to the story. I had not been to see her for a long time when for some reason I went again. She was not in her usual room. Instead, she spoke to me through an absurd screen. I mean, I think that's common, but for some reason not in this case. Is she jealous then? I wondered, at once amused by this nonsense and perfectly conscious that this might be just the chance I was looking for i.e. to break up with her. But no, my paragon of learning was not one to indulge in frivolous complaints. She knew the world and its ways too well to be upset with me. 
Instead, she briskly announced, Having lately been prostrate with a most vexing indisposition, I have for medical purposes been ingesting allium sativum, which is garlic. So she's into Chinese medicine, maybe, like herbs and things, right? Even today, you know, like garlic is, is associated largely with Chinese cuisine. And um, yeah, even, even with Chinese cuisine, if you have something that a Japanese person has made, chances are you're going to need to add some garlic and you're going to have to add some pepper to it in order for it to taste remotely normal because <laughs> they, don't, they don't go for that even today. Uh, and she says, And my breath, I fear, is too noxious to allow me to entertain you in my normal fashion. However, while I cannot address you face to face, I hope that you will communicate to me any services you may wish me to perform on your behalf. So she's, she's just a real nerd, you know. It was an imposing oration. What could I possibly answer? I just said, Very well, got up and started out. I suppose she had been hoping for something better because she called after me, Do return when the odor has abated. And then they have a fun little poetic exchange here, uh, which turns around puns on the word for garlic, right? Uh, oh, yes, she was very quick with her tongue, the aide calmly concluded. The appalled young gentleman assumed that he must have made up his story, and they burst into laughter. There cannot be any such woman, cried the secretary captain. That's Tono Chujo. You might as well have made friends with a demon. It is too weird. He snapped his fingers and glared at the aide in mute outrage. Come, he finally insisted. You will have to do better. Uh, and snapping your fingers is a gesture of censure or irritation. So it seems they're really angry, actually, a little bit. Yeah, and then the chief equerry has to come in and sort of, like, smooth things over. It's true. I, he, he says, I cannot stand the way mediocrities, men or women, so long to show off all the tiny knowledge they may possess, the chief equerry put in. There is nothing at all attractive about having absorbed weighty stuff like the three histories and the five classics. These are the Confucian classics, right? And besides, why should anyone, just because she is a woman, be completely ignorant of what matters in this world, public or private? A woman with any mind at all is bound to retain many things, even if she does not actually study. Uh, so th th he's reinforcing, I think, this... Con is it maybe a little threatening for high-ranking characters like Genji and Tono Chujo to hear about uh, such an accomplished woman? I'm interested in this. This is, this is wild. Uh, so the chief equerry smoothing it over. So now he's, the, he's laying down the law, sort of showing off for the higher-ranking people and saying, yeah, so she writes chi cursive Chinese characters. After all, she crams her letters more than half full of them, even ones to other women where they're, they're, they're hopelessly out of place. And you think, oh no, if only she could be more feminine. She may not have meant it that way, but the letter still ends up being read to her correspondent in a stiff, formal tone, and it sounds as though that was what she had meant all along. A lot of senior gentlewomen do that sort of thing, you know. The woman out to make poetry becomes so keen on it that she stuffs her very first line with allusions to great works from the past until it is a real nuisance to get a poem from her when you have other things on your mind. You cannot very well not reply, and you look bad if circumstances at the moment prevent you from doing so. Take the festivals, for example. Say it is the morning of the Sweet Flag Festival. 
You are off to the palace in such a rush that everything is a blur, and she presents you with one of her efforts, quivering with incredible word plays. Sweet Flag Festival, by the way. This is uh, a plant that kind of looks like the male member, actually, Sweet Flag, and uh, it, it's like in a kind of iris, sort of. Celebrated for its flowers as well. And that festival would have been the boys' festival, in fact. This is a festival of masculinity. And he's being emasculated by too many word plays and Chinese cultural allusions in a, in a woman's poem. That's why he doesn't like it. So here's where the, the criticisms are coming, right? Or it's time for the chrysanthemum festival. You are racking your brains to work out a tricky Chinese poem, and here comes a lament from her full of chrysanthemum dew, and, as usual, quite out of place. At other times, too, her way of sending you out of season, a poem that afterward you might admit is not actually all that bad, without pausing to think that you may be unable even to give it a glance, because you're too busy, it can hardly be called very bright, she would do better to refrain from showing off her wit and taste whenever her failure to grasp your circumstances leaves you wondering why she had to do it or cursing the fix she has put you in. A woman should feign ignorance of what she knows and, when she wants to speak on a subject, leave some things out. Meanwhile, Genji was absorbed in meditation on one lady alone. So this would be Fujitsubo. This is a woman that reminds... The emperor, his father, as well as Genji, of Genji's late mother. And Genji will later have a secret liaison with her and actually secretly father the next emperor uh, with her. So that's quite a scandal. And that's another reason why this novel was way out of fashion in times when the monarchical institution was more important, like the Meiji period the modern era up until the defeat in the war. So there you have it, a matrilocal sex-gender system, very similar to other parallel systems that you can see in Western India, in the east of India, in Southeast Asia, Indonesia, in Southern China as well, Yunnan, Sichuan, And uh, many other places as well, of course. You know, Turtle Island. Many of the people of Turtle Island have matrilineal, matrilocal councils of women in longhouses making decisions. You know, and it's not like there's nothing for men to do in those societies. That would be a, a myth as well. They have all kinds of things that they do. There's different kinds of power that they exercise. And there's different contradictions Even in the kingless generation, there will be contradictions of various kinds. We just need to find the way to not have escalation and and accelerating class struggle uh, of all different kinds, right? Including, and and pretty crucially, in in our kinship systems. I think we really have to get this right. And that's why I don't go along with people who just say, Hey, no rules, you know, whatever. Um, it's, it's more, it's progressive and revolutionary if you just have lots of random, uh, hookups, especially with me, baby. You know, that's not, uh, you, all kinds of problems with that in leftist spaces, right? It actually just, again, libertarianism 
It's just going to give more power to the people who already have power in bourgeois society. If we're going to have revolutionary organizations, we need to swim against the current. And that doesn't mean having no structure at all. You know. On the other hand, you know, here in Japan, you get the JCP, which is good on social issues and basic like cultural issues, uh, right? But they're just they're liberal as hell. They embrace everything that American imperialism says. Uh, you know, you you can't work with them. But then on the other side, the people who would be uh, pro the pro Russian people, especially. Uh, you know, there's there's quite a lot of those Eurasianists, you know, like really kind of and pretty fashy ultimately, you know, they'll be like uh, and they have oh, there's all kinds of things I could get into different Twitter accounts and fucking minor political writers uh, who straddle this kind of line of uh, the only anti-American people, right? Like really. The anti-American folks, even if they identify as leftists, will be social chauvinists uh, to a person, right? They'll be anti-trans. That you know, trans is something that uh, the World Economic Forum is forcing on us, uh, and and they'll be also anti-Semitic. I want to get into that as well real soon. I have a I have a episode planned. I keep trying to get Prez on the horn. I will just say one thing, though. If if you're not a shitlib and if you're not an anti-conspiracy leftist, I think, that has no concept of class struggle and, and doesn't believe in a ruling class with a mind and a heart and a will, you know, uh, you won't be seduced by the call of uh, race struggle that it proposes on the surface, right? Uh, and instead, what you're going to notice... As you read it, this is a manual for a ruling class. You, and in that sense, maybe everybody should read it if you're of a certain base level of maturity. You know, you've sat through a fucking almost three-hour podcast with me right now. So at this point, I feel like I can say that. Yeah, you read it, check it out, and see how there's this dual structure, right? I'll say more about this later. But um, I want to say this here now, like... It's like what we are doing now to promote communism, to promote liberalism and socialism and everything. We, the Jews, right? If you just remove that mask of the Jews, right? Well, the first part, right? There's there's the actual left and the actual working class trying to emancipate itself is slandered as being instead this race enemy, the Jew, right? Uh, but then it, it always has this two-stage thing. And then when we are able to rule openly, when we get come into our power, right, they, all the things they say are exactly what the actual ruling class does. Uh, even the covert things they say, you know, do uh, controlled opposition. I think that's a literal phrase that's in the protocols. They, they, have, they talk about media manipulation. We have to have everybody on our payroll Make sure that's what they do, you know, and as you're reading this as a raging anti-communist uh, American somewhere, some some pretty petty bourgeois uh, white settler, you're going to be thinking the whole time it recruits you. It recruits you as an elder of Zion yourself. You have to become uh, not you have to become like them. Right. And so in the end, if you just remove this fake mask of the Jew, 
it's a it's a manual it's an instruction manual for how to operate as a ruling class this is something that two young badass was really interested in saying is it the the real true version of history do they do they write it down somewhere do they keep it all in oral transmission i i think with the secret societies uh, often focus on making you memorize increasingly complex oral uh, transmissions of different kinds. And I, I think that is working you up to uh, be ready to receive oral transmissions uh, like their actual historical beliefs and, and so on, right? But the protocols are a big candidate for that, I think. And, and who reads it? Who reads it except, you know, at least petty bourgeois, if not higher, right, on the actual class totem pole. Even if you're working class, you might you might hesitate to read it. So and and I I think you maybe should. You should approach it as a ruling class manual. All the things that they say the Jews are doing is what they themselves do, right? When it's not actually when they're not actually talking about the authentic organizing of the working class and calling that the Jewish plot, which they of course there's a lot of that in there and that is a central central thesis of it, right? Any kind of liberation, anything at all is, uh, you know, only the Jews plotting to uh, just become rulers instead of the, the aristocratic ruling class of Europe, which is the only hope of the European working class to have a modicum of mercy in the class struggle. So stick with the devil you know rather than the devil you don't is the message for, for someone of low standing. To, to you, it would say that. But if you are a, a big bourgeois reading it, you say, oh, that's a good idea. We need to do that. We need to do that. We need to do that. Right. And of course, the people who originally forged it were writing it for the purpose of encoding those instructions, I think, to their fellow members of the capitalist ruling class. So indeed, kinship systems, though, that's that's one of the deepest weapons that the ruling class has, right, as they're beginning to monopolize, as they're beginning to accumulate, that gets protected by changes in the kinship system, which you can see in a lot of these tensions in the rainy night critique of ranks in the tale of Genji. You can see this tension between patriarchal energies and matriarchal energies still fighting it out, and that that contest would not be decided yet until the 12th, the 13th century. So that's another extension to the description that we find in Engels based on Celtic, Germanic, Greek, Roman, and some, some things about the Iroquois, Haudenosaunee, and, and so on. But we can add this, right? That's, that's what I'm trying to, trying to do here. Um, you can learn more about all these different uh, matrilineal societies that I mentioned. Uh, there's materials related to that in some way, up on the Discord server, which you can become a member of the Kingless Generation over on Patreon.com. Just search for the Kingless Generation. You'll find it. And uh, you can become a member of the Discord server then. And uh, that those materials, as well as many, many more materials related to really all human societies, cultures in every region, every time period that is known to me or you. Uh, we are collecting them there together as a community. 
and we're anal- analyzing them. We are participating in the open source science of dialectical materialism, revolutionary history, and we're gathering revolutionary intelligence. Because we need to know what are the things that the ruling class has done to stop revolutionary transformation in relations of production to de-escalate class struggle. And what are the ways that those de-escalations have happened in the past? We can look to the past for models. We don't only have to like new things, future things, robots and fucking whatever, although that's great too. And you know, I was going to say the other side of social chauvinism is a kind of libertinism that uh, one time on Twitter, not too long ago, I called out or something or I said, you know, something like we we need to have some kind of rules for, you know, organizing communities, revolutionary communities. What is revolutionary kinship, sexuality look like versus just bourgeois libertine uh, sexuality, right? Um, now, I realize that incorrect understandings of this have led to people saying, oh, you know, homosexuality is bourgeois or something inherently. And that's what the social chauvinists say. But, uh, you know, just the very idea that there might be some limits on what will work in a, I mean, first of all, in a community that is trying to make revolution, right? What's going to actually just work there? I didn't know what those limits might be, but some people came, you know, I, I sort of said something against like sex nerd shit or whatever. And the sex nerds that replied just gave me the perfect, uh, you know, the, the algorithm on, on Twitter is good for something because uh, there's perfect uh, examples of like, I like pictures of eating dead people and drinking blood. And I think this is uh, arousing and, and attractive yeah, so come and, and entrust your future uh, to me. We're, let's fight the ruling class together, huh? All right, comrade? Uh, no way, dude. You can't be absorbed in all kinds of Baroque sex nerd shit. I mean, at least not as your whole forward-facing identity or whatever. Like, that's not going to get us free. Come on. And there was another guy on there who was like the epitome of DSA guy. One of his recent tweets at the time was, does anyone have advice for maintaining long-term relationships and balancing that with organizing, which necessitates a broad-based social presence, which is inevitably sexual? <laughs> no. Uh, uh, no. Alarm. Red flag. You should not be uh, anywhere near organizing, maybe. If organizing for you is inevitably sexual, you're just going to be fucking everything that moves while everyone's risking their lives and trying to... We need responsibility. I mean, we really do need... This is something Arnold talks about as well. I I wouldn't follow him in saying, oh, just forget every word that you ever know about the left and the right and whatever. Like, no, 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 no. There's a history. The wheel has been invented, and it's been used on machines that have gotten somewhere in the past, not nowhere. And we can make even better machines using some of the same principles and designs, right? Uh, But, yeah, we can be respectable. It's okay for the left to be competent 
It's okay for us to project an image and create a reality of institutional competence. It doesn't make you a more authentic revolutionary. If you're just winging it every time, you're shooting from the hip, you're going in without a plan, and you're risking everybody's life. This isn't a fucking game, and we don't have time for kid shit. So, we do, yeah, we need to have some kind of rules here. You know, what those are, I leave entirely up to people struggling in the moment. Working class people struggling in the moment will find the things that work. And we're going to face a lot of, you know, as, as Alexandra Kollontai says again and again, and you check out Revolutionary Left Radio and Red Menace for a lot on her and a lot of readings of her primary texts and things. Check out AK-47, which stands for 47 texts by Alexandra Kollontai. That is by Kristen Godsey, who is the foremost scholar of Kollontai. You know, whatever you want to say, the picket fence, post-war, class compromise, social fascist, nuclear family is a dead letter. Absolutely. That's been totally crushed. And we need to build something better. We need to build something better, right? Um, definitely abolish the family in the sense of the Latin familias, your, your collection of slaves under the patriarch, right? Definitely that. But yeah, if we're not gonna if we're not gonna go with that etymological understanding, then maybe we should say expand the family, right? Reunite the large extended family, enlarge the family to be congruous with the entire society, so that every child that is born, each one of us has a responsibility to be an auntie, to be an uncle to that child. We don't need, we're not passing on private property to our heirs and no one else's. And so there doesn't need to be our heirs and no one else's. You know, there's no such thing as just my child or just someone else's child. Just not my child. No such thing. Every child is my child. Every child is your child. And you need to, we would, we need to take full responsibility for their full well-being in every regard. That's another diagnostic for what are some of the limits of, of sexuality that will work in a revolutionary community, in people who are building socialism, right? I think those limits will be somewhere. I don't know exactly where they will be, but they will, they will for one, revolve around what can you do and also be an auntie and an uncle to every child? What can you do and also be a comrade to every person, obviously including your partner? I think there are some things that people are into that you have to dehumanize uh, the person you're doing it with. So where are you going to get those people if everyone is your comrade in your community and you're building socialism? Like, for real. You're serious, you're serious about this. Everyone's life is on the line, you know. So there's some limits. I'm not here to prescribe those. But uh, we need to struggle, figure it out. So there's a good three hours right there. Yeah. When I was in grad school, one of my most influential professors sort of was came in and, and was like, I just came from this other university where we spend three hours in seminar. And I can't get used to these two-hour seminars that you have over here. So is it okay if I keep us – does every, every, nobody's uh, occupied after this? 
Great. Let's keep going. Uh, often it would continue as well at a cafe, at the pub. You'd keep going, right? You cannot really, really get into a rhythm and really build and build and build on something in too short of a time. You know, I think uh, we over here around the Kingless generation and uh, related uh, areas, we know this. We know this. You need you need time to to build build up. You need to sit in the cave and and deprive your senses. You need to get into the rhythm. You need to watch the no play attentively. Just get into that slow, slow rhythm. Nothing is happening, maybe. Uh, obviously, lots of things are happening in, in a certain sense, but then you get into that rhythm, you get into the zone, and then as things start to move forward, then there's a whole progression, and then it really builds up into something very special. I'm Fergal Schmudlock, and I have anointed you with the anointing of the kingless generation. Hili heva kahimana ola, ke ole ke kuka kuka, maka heva vale kuulia anala, ika poa meke Kuhia uaheia onola, ke pu ke momoni Maka heva vale kuulia anala, ika poa meke